my camera up for you. Well, it's actually the 148th episode of Franken Review, and we're doing Science Fiction Director Masterclass Part 2. The last time it was Sky Brandon, but today we're going to have former champion Paxton Francis and myself, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, looking at six interesting science fiction movies from six really talented directors. So it's going to be another tough list, and it's going to be another epic episode, I think. So uh, hold on to your butts. As usual, we are going to be talking spoilers for the films we review, and we're also going to be talking with our potty mouths and multi swears and course language, and uh, let's all just be grown-ups. Let's all be grown-ups about this. These things happen. Please send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And please check out the website at rankinreview.ca. Thank you so much for lending me your ears. Now let's get to some sci-fi director masterclass. Paxton Francis. It has been a while since you've been on Rankin Review. The 100th episode was the last time you were here, and we talked about the Coen brothers, and it was a pretty fucking epic episode. It was. I remember it. I have a feeling that this might be kind of an epic episode, because big topics. What number is this? I'll edit if I'm wrong, but I think this will be 147. Oof. Yeah. That took me a long time to come back. (laughs) Um, The, The last time... Must have hurt bad. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, it was a crucible because we had to choose between <laughs> it was a hard brothers, list. And now we have this director masterclass. Another hard list. Science fiction. We've been here before. I did a sci-fi director masterclass with Sky Brandon, mutual friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really fun episode. I think this is going to be a really fun episode. But just like that episode, I'm going to say, you're going to find me being tougher on these movies than I usually am. And it's strange that I make excuses for like cheesy B slasher movies and monster movies that are clearly like <laughs> stapled together. I'll be like, I'll shrug it off and say, oh, shucks. We do that a lot, don't we? I do, anyway. The movies I love. But we do the, we're really hard on these movies we love thing. Yeah. It's because you keep making these lists full of really good <laughs> movies. But if you're Ridley Scott and you're Jim Cameron and you can spend $250 million making any fucking movie you want, I'm going to like the movie probably because you're talented and it's going to be a, a, you know, a light show. But my expectations go up and it's easier to talk about the stuff that... You know, this plot point doesn't work to me. Then talk about man that those visuals, or mm-hmm. man the scope of it, because I think that largely goes without saying in this list. Right. <laughs> so, uh, why did you want to do this list, and uh, how are you feeling going in? Oh, I'm feeling flippity floppity. As I <laughs> said to you when we talked about it the other day, uh, the top end of this list, I could uh, read you my ranking and then shake my head, and it might be different. Uh, so it's going to be tricky. There are several movies on this uh, group that I have a long and loving relationship with, and I wanted to talk about those. I've been waiting, as you know, to watch the new Blade Runner sequel, <laughs> which I hear is good, but I have been refusing to watch until recording this podcast because I wanted to get that done and get my thoughts out on that movie before we and I've been really good about keeping my possibly change them you've been amazing about it so is my brother <laughs> everyone I know 
had I, I know very little about it except that you guys like it. So, um, yeah, there's going to be lots of interesting stuff for us to talk about, to agree on, and I think we'll have a few interesting disagreements as we talk our way through this list, and we'll have fun kicking the teeth out of Matrix 3 together. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there is there is definitely an odd one out here. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers going yeah, We can't really kick the teeth out of it, because she was already just a toothless, yeah. sad sack to begin with. But uh, There was a time of the era of The Abyss where I would have called James Cameron one of, if not one of, my favorite Absolutely. I l- yeah. I like, was so excited in 89 when this movie came out. A new James Cameron film was something to get genuinely excited about mm-hmm. uh, once upon a time. Nowadays, I'm, I'm much more to the Danny Boyle. We also have a Danny Boyle movie here. Mm-hmm. I would get much more ex- excited today about a new Danny Boyle movie than I would about a new Jim Cameron I was going movie. to say Jim Cameron has found a way to break your mold because mm-hmm. he not only has these incredible budgets to deal with he's simultaneously manages to operate with really low expectations everyone thinks the new avatar movies are going to be awful <laughs> and if they're anything less than atrocious i'll be pleasantly surprised i, I think they're going to be bad yeah. ridley scott inconsistent but definitely very respect a lot of respect for that director but mm-hmm. not everyone's going to be a home run for him um, Robert Zemeckis can sometimes get bogged down in the technical world of his filmmaking. Sometimes he's so busy making a light show that he forgets to tell a story. That is not the case when we're talking about contact, but it can be a t- case for him. But he's another director, which I'd have a hard time picking my favorite film. I love contact. I love who framed Roger Rabbit, you know? Mm-hmm. I love the Back to the Future series. Like, it's the man true. gives good movie, right? Contact uh, is is definitely up there. Did he direct Gump? He is did it, direct yeah. Forrest Gump. I, I made a point of not including that. One. No, I, <laughs> but, I just uh, couldn't remember. On and that he did one. like the new Beau Roger Beowulf. Rabbit is the only one for me on that you've mentioned so far of Zemeckis's. Uh, Back to the Future is such a part of my contact. childhood. You know, it's just a, one of those movies, right? <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, so. Uh, and then the Wachowski siblings, they have a, they started really strong in their career. Like, I was talking to you before we started the podcast, if maybe the Wachowskis are no longer worthy of, like, a director masterclass list. But there was a time, again, where the next next Wachowski movie would be a big deal. The cat's having a little scratch fest. <laughs> She's uh, irritated by the Wachowski siblings, I guess. Uh, there was a time, I guess, when they were Hollywood's or, and sci-fi's new darling, but that was, like... 99, yeah, and it's been diminishing returns. That's all there was. Yeah. <laughs> there hasn't been anything since. But like when I, we talked about the Matrix, uh, we we were quite enthusiastic ago, about it. Yeah. Yes, and uh, for anybody who listens very religiously to this podcast, uh, you might remember us agreeing that like you just can kind of just stop after Matrix One. Do yourself a favor. If anybody, I don't think anyone's ever actually asked me this question, but if somebody were to say. Hey, my uh, my buddy's never seen the Matrix movies. What do you say? I would say watch the first one and don't even mention the others. Call it a day. It's it's not worth it. I still feel like they have that potential because of how much I like Bound and the Matrix. I feel like they have good movies in them. They just haven't, for some reason, made. Cloud Atlas was close, but it's it was tough. So, and then the only one that I didn't mention, since I mentioned all the rest, is Alfonso Cuaron and the uh, very impressive Children of Children Men. Children of Men. And uh, he's been an Oscar favorite ever since this movie, and deservedly so. Yeah, it's a good pick-me-up if you're uh, feeling low. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh, so those are the six movies we're going to be discussing in this director masterclass. Is there anything you would like to say by way of introduction before we duck into this? No, I think we should uh, uh, jump in pretty quickly because we have a lot of movie yeah. that we have to cover. I am excited to be back, but uh, I'll be talking your ears off for the next <laughs> couple of hours anyway. So let's dive let's right in. All right, just once more for the record, we're going to be talking about James Cameron's The Abyss. We're going to talk about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner director's cut. Blade Runner. Blade Runner. And we're going to talk about Children of Men from Alfonso Curren, Contact from Zemeckis, The Matrix Revolutions from the Wachowski siblings, and we're going to close it out with Danny Boyle's Sunshine. Well, we all see what we want to see. Coffee looks and he sees hate and fear. You have to look with better eyes than that. Please, do you hear me? He's coming up fast. I need to know if you're okay. You can't leave me here alone. You never backed away from anything in your life. Now fight! So in 1989, out comes Jim Cameron's The Abyss. And young Paxton is so excited. He's 12 and he's just brimming with excitement. (laughs) Aliens was so awesome, man. The Abyss is going to be awesome, Aliens is fucking awesome. Like, that can't be understated. And, you know, banking off of Terminator and Aliens, everybody wanted to see, I guess. Well, maybe they didn't because the movie was a little bit of a financial disappointment. But it was an ambitious science fiction movie both on the story that it was trying to tell I wanted to see it badly enough for everybody exactly and not just the ambition of the story but the technical like filmmaking in it like the equipment that they designed so that we could see the actors faces while they're in scuba gear and the actors could talk to each other in different scuba like he was pushing the tech for underwater filmmaking and then like the toughest filmmakers in the world will say stay dry while you're shooting like that just another layer himself (laughs) and then continually makes movies underwater one of the one of the new avatar movies is apparently underwater sometimes i sort of think that a lot of these really ambitious directors have that in them like they want to do the thing that's tough or they want to keep proving themselves like soderbergh making a movie on an apple phone just because i can (laughs) um but instead of growing small Cameron doesn't do small. I can never really imagine Cameron making like a million dollar indie feature Just that was a personal to tight him. little <laughs> right? character driven no. story. It's always going to be huge. It's, yeah. it's about a crew of uh, deep water drillers, I believe. It's an experimental underwater oil drilling rig. Yeah. It's a proof of concept to try and prove to uh, uh, the industry that, that they can build these underwater rigs and drill, baby, drill at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's destroy the environment someplace no one's looking. Right. <laughs> um, but they happen to be situated because they're all really, really deep and in the right. They're pressurized and whatnot. They're close to where the military's lost contact with the submarine, and they want to use these guys to cooperate in a, in a rescue salvage attempt. Right. And that kicks off the plot, which get, we'll get into it, but it involves nuclear weapon is in play and possibly Aliens alien creatures. Or some NTIs. Yeah, whatever these things are that are living at the bottom of this abyss, which this whole thing is perched next to. Uh, 
Yes. So uh, it's star-studded. It was critically just adored, but like I say, it was considered a financial disappointment. Well, I, it just was straight up a financial disappointment. Yeah. It was a massively expensive movie. It I went like way the, over budget. Like and then all it the different iterations back. on video and the fact that you can still go to a, you, know, you can still get yourself a copy of it. I'd like to think at some point that they made their money back at least. The fact that the world is currently and has been for years now salivating for the uh, 4K edition, yeah, whatever the hell they call it, the uh, edition of the movie that's supposed to be coming, and this is the I guess thirtieth. Anniversary. anniversary of the movie this uh, this coming be a good summer, time for it. so they better get it out. Apparently, it's the the footage has all been it's done. It's just been waiting for a long time for uh, special feature stuff that they still want to do, like interviews with all the cast and Cameron and whatnot. Yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing. Like, uh, there are problems with the movie. I would never say that there isn't, but I love the abyss and even though it's not like the fucking awesome like action masterpiece that either like the terminator movies or or uh, uh, aliens was it the fact that he was playing in a different field so well showed me he had real game as a filmmaker so i understand that there are problems with the abyss but i can't not love the abyss that's my opening salvo where do you stand <laughs> i'm with you my friend i love the abyss i uh, i have a wish that the abyss didn't have its problems because the movie is the first two-thirds of the movie are uh, excellently conceived beautifully executed on every level as you said the technical filmmaking is amazing the the finished product is breathtaking to this day to look at um and the the story is well conceived the acting is is and no weak links there are no weak links in the story or, or the execution of the telling of it anywhere until some point in, and this is a problem with so many of the movies we talk about, these high-minded sci-fi movies, which The Abyss becomes this high-minded sci-fi movie. It seems like it's already high-minded enough when it's just this claustrophobic, uh, uh, sort of feels like a 70s disaster movie, except in this sci-fi setting, and the the scary Navy SEAL nuclear weapon uh, crazy guy going crazy from uh, what is it Deep nitrogen sea. poisoning in his blood or whatever yeah. that that whole story is already c- very compelling and then we get the whole hey there are aliens at the bottom of the ocean judging us yeah. for our uh, activities as moral or amoral creatures now we're talking about specifically the director's cut is the one that we're going to talk about here today right yeah, well, we can. I think we can address both. But uh, yes, I watched the we direct, them, yeah. We're going to do the director's yeah. cut. I watched the director's cut for this. Uh, Neither this. version of the movie is satisfying. To no, me, no, problem. they're both imperfect. Then they both have problems. But interesting, they're kind of different. You, you, you're dead on with me, though. I think that the adventure, uh, sort of rescue and stakes of like the crane falling and the storm, all of that in a way was enough of a movie that once Chris we Chris Elliott was even there Larry it was yeah. perfect yeah but all of that was enough to make it an amazing movie in a way this Close Encounters NTI stuff is the stuff that ends up weighing down the movie even though to be fair the movie opens with the NTI crashing the submarine they cause the submarine we, the, crash. we know yeah. as the audience knows that there's some sort of weird glowing thing and we have no reason to believe as the Navy SEAL leader does that it's some sort of Russian Device. We yeah. get the idea it's a James Cameron movie. We're expecting something super 
natural or extraterrestrial. We need that payoff, and they set it up for one. But the payoff is kind of where things kind of... Everything else is, like, amazing, as far as I'm concerned. Like, I, I sound hyperbolic, but, like, mm. there's... It's a good 45 minutes into the movie before the, the first proper action sequence takes place. I guess the opening sequence with the sub sinking is, is sort mm. of, like, sets the table, but... Once uh, we get into the setting of the deep core drilling rig yeah it's, but a, it's a lot of the times when i say like some of the old hitchcock movies i reviewed take a good hour to start to cook and i was like some so just let's let's get started i never felt that way even when i was young watching the abyss all of the character development the establishing of the environments all of the the moon room and the the control room so you kind of have right, a the moon pool is the ambient diving pool yeah right? so you understand basically the rough layout and who belongs where and who everybody is Right. And then the shit goes down so that you care about people when it, it happens. I was, you just hit the word I was going to jump in with, is that the movie does a really good job of wild giving us all of the world building and exposition that we need to understand what's going on. We also start to care a little bit about these characters that are uh, charmingly written and uh, charmingly acted, and we almost instantly like characters like... Uh, what's his name is in the pajamas through most of the movie Jammer right right, big dude and Cat when they first open the doors and let every, let um, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's character what's her name um, uh, it doesn't matter <laughs> I'm sure it'll pop up to one of us but there, there's intricate world building and character building going on at the same time and it's all very well done in such a way that you're just swept up into it I feel like the story already feels like it's cooking a little bit before the storm hits. And so maybe this would be a place for us to do... It feels to you and I like everyone's seen The Abyss, but right. maybe people haven't. Should we do a bit of a, a plot uh, synopsis? I guess I set the stage, but I didn't really say the specifics. There's there there's this deep core, or this, this deep sea drilling rig, and the uh, sub has crashed, the military comes in and sort of... Uh, commandeers the drilling rig to use as an underwater diving platform to go and try and do a search and uh, rescue and mission. They also, and really what they want is the nukes. They recover the nukes, yeah. Yeah, recover or destroy the I don't think the they nukes. were expecting to find any survivors. It would be great if they did, but I don't think that the military were, were expecting that. Right, it was a race against the Russians. This was a Cold War era movie when this was yeah. written, right? And uh, you can't have just a whole bunch of... Uh, of intercontinental ballistic missiles laying there in a tin can at the bottom of a trench when you just happen to have the world's first deep sea diving platform drilling rig just sitting there. It's too juicy for yeah. the Navy to pass it up. So this team of Navy SEALs led by Corporal Hicks from Aliens, Michael a.k.a. Bean. Michael Bean, so Star of Terminator, and he plays uh, a badass... Um, Navy SEAL, they lead a team down to use, and they sort of not just commandeer the drilling rig, do they? But they, the they sort of bribe everybody. the crew into helping out by offering them yeah. triple pay or something, right? Well, the crew has to go look for bodies, and the the military goes after the gear. Meanwhile, I don't know if she's just showing up just because, and it's the timing, or if she's there. She shows up with the military, yeah, doesn't she? she doesn't she, want them to fuck up her rig, because she right. designed this she's whole thing. She's the designer of the rig. Turning. They're going to be pushing the limits of this machine to their limits, as they do this mission, and so they want the engineer. It's a, it's an unproven, as I said, we, it's a, a prototype kind yeah. of thing, right? She's the chief engineer. She's also the estranged spouse of Bud, the uh, the guy who leads the crew of the rig, Ed Harris. Ed Harris, who who puts in both of them 
Harris and Master Antonio are both, they put in stellar performances in this Indeed. movie. Indeed. She makes up for everything bad about Robin Hood. It was not, not quite. I'm not going her fault. overboard. Not her fault. <laughs> not her fault. No, it's not her fault. But that's that's for another... That's another day. That's for none of your podcasts. <laughs> Let somebody else do a podcast about that movie. Um, anyway. Uh, moving along with the story. Yes. Go ahead, Larry. You take the torch. Okay, well... Uh, it gets further complicated because of a storm above them. They lose communication, and worse than that, a crane which holds a cable that attaches them to this... All of their communication and air and... It, it falls free, and there's a really horrifying scene while they're looking out the, this window and watching the, this huge coil uh, land, sort of pile up next to them, and they're waiting for this gigantic crane to land on them. And then it doesn't, and they're like, phew! But it does tip over and start falling into the abyss. And they start getting dragged towards the edge this of the abyss. huge two-mile-deep trench. So, by the end of this, they've lost a lot of their crew. They have no communication. The rig is running low on oxygen. Michael Bean's character has lost his fucking mind because he's got this deep sea sickness. And he's convinced the Russians are after them. And they start seeing these NDIs, which... NTIs. NTIs, pardon me. Which is terrifying to the crew, but is absolutely confirming all of the worst fears of the Michael Bean character. So they have all of this shit that they have to deal with. Just staying alive in this can, dealing with the crazy military, and dealing with whatever these weird lights are. Right. And that's the movie, but... <laughs> well, that's <laughs> the setup for the movie. When we do plot synopsis, do you go right through to the end or do you stop? Well, we can. I mean, uh, there, we'll definitely get to... We can jump over the details. The abyss, We're going to be talking about the plunge. We're going to be talking about the resuscitation, all yeah. of that. And then... I the, wanted to talk about Ed, Ed Harris, actually, because he doesn't actually talk about this movie when he's interviewed. Even though He hasn't for a long time. He yeah. has a couple of times, and he was, like, he was in tears in the yeah. one interview I've seen with him about it. James Cameron, by many accounts, is kind of a monster. <laughs> and um, he almost drowned making this movie. And he should be so proud of this movie, not just because like the, the Herculean task it would have been to make it, but Ed Harris is like, even in bad movies, he's good. This might be his finest hour. He is fucking amazing in this movie, and he's the heart and center of the movie. I haven't seen um, everything he's done. He was in Space Cowboys, right? That was, I hear <laughs> was, that was good. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, it's the best. I would say it's my favorite Ed Harris performance of any movie I've seen him in. Yeah, but well, that that's gotta suck to you know, it's, for him to know that he did some of his best work in a movie that he he can barely bring himself to talk about. And it really speaks volumes of just how difficult Cameron must be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Life's abyss, and then you die. <laughs> I think is what the T-shirt said that the crew had made. The uh, there's so much to talk about in this movie, and there's so much to talk about in the making of this movie, and I want to try not to get too, too swept up into that, that particularly because of how fascinating it is. The, <laughs> uh, I suggest anybody who loves The Abyss and who hasn't seen the uh, documentary about the making of it that's on the DVD and is also widely, like, it's just find it on fascinating. YouTube. fascinating. <laughs> it's on YouTube, and it's, uh, it is fascinating, and I think everybody who worked on that movie was changed by it like it's it's that interesting a story they filmed it in the core of an unfinished nuclear reactor that they turned into the biggest fresh water uh, tank in the world and then they built the second biggest freshwater tank in the world for their B unit right? like, <laughs> and then inside small. that they built a replica of the inside of a US nuclear ballistic missile sub and they went and shot in and lit it and 
James Cameron developed diving suits and microphones that actually with rebreathers that actually you don't question it, anything in the movie. Insanity that this movie ever got. How did it ever get made? Yeah. I don't understand how this movie got made. But I'm but glad it I did. I love that it did. <laughs> I just wish it didn't. I I won't go so far as to say it shits the bed in the third act, but neither neither the theatrical release nor the remixed whatever director's cut that were special edition that we're talking about specifically today. Uh, makes the they don't jump the neither one jumps the shark elegantly right. into the third act when um, when it's revealed that there's an alien intelligence at the bottom of the trench and Bud does the dive and all of that there's some gripping stuff going on there and it's really very very late in the film when you go for the loop I suppose in the director's cut I know Larry I'll I'll speak on behalf of you for a second, <laughs> if I may, and say that I know you really hate the two candles in the dark speech yeah. soliloquy that she gives to Bud. Now, something we have to talk about, I'll back up for a second, because both characters, both protagonists in this film die and yeah. come back to life, yep. which is something that's difficult. Sounds cheesy, but they execute it very well. <laughs> they execute it very well-ish, depending on the viewer I think and even depending on your mood I can watch that scene it's one of the best pieces of of screen acting I've seen at least come out of Ed Harris but come out of a lot of people is the scene where Resus- they're stuck in this little sub I, we don't need to get into the details of how but uh, the two main characters the estranged husband and wife Bud and Mary, this is in, insert I name here Larry um, they're stuck in this little sub they're drowning they have one suit and she has to drown and freeze and let her heart rate go low and Bud has to swim her back and they do this uh, really intense resuscitation. Uh, he basically just, though, ends up smacking her back to life Beats and to yelling life. at her. And uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio acted the shit out of that to the point where she ended up leaving the set crying that day and yeah. Harris finished the day acting to a hole in the floor with the camera in it. Again, we're getting into the making of it, but um, that scene is incredible. Then later in the movie, the scene is mirrored when Bud dives to the bottom of the abyss to retrieve the nuclear weapon that the disarm crazy it Navy, anyway, yeah, right, disarm it, whatever. See what he can do to stop the nuke that the crazed Navy SEAL has sent down they there to fail blow to up. stop Michael Bean from doing that. Michael Bean's out of the picture, but the problem still exists. Right, the nuke that he sent down to kill the aliens is still there, even though Michael Bean is a, is a, in a crushed coke <laughs> can at the bottom of the abyssal trench. Uh, and this is when Ed Harris was nearly uh, killed making the movie, was in filming these scenes where he's sinking to the bottom of the trench, and he's presumably, his character's breathing uh, liquid, a sort of liquid oxygen emulsion. It's, it's a uh, a real thing that's I think 70 years ago was first developed and, right. and rats can breathe it in fact the rat who breathes it in the movie is really breathing it uh, it killed him <laughs> eventually probably I mean rats die in two years anyway but um, it's not very good for you to breathe <laughs> Ed Harris did not breathe the stuff making the movie they, it's done as a special effect but he I had, thought it was the free swim where he almost drowned but no, my understanding is that it, okay. In all of the scenes when he's sinking into the trench and he's supposed to be breathing the fluid, yeah, he actually has water inside his helmet, ah. so, so that we can see bubbles, and bubbles and stuff, right? And in he's just holding his breath. And in between takes, he's got a safety diver who swims in. He flips up the faceplate, and the safety diver gives him a respirator. I see. And they were in the scene. He's supposed to be sinking like two miles straight down. 
that would be really dangerous to film when he's actually, you know, the, the change in pressure yeah. uh, would hurt the actor's ears, right? And lungs and whatever. So um, they're dragging him sideways across this rocky background and they've got the camera sideways, right? And that's how they're filming his descent into the abyss. And in one take, his safety diver got hung up on something and couldn't get to him. And when another safety diver got in there and put, and in the valve he put, upside down. He put the breather in upside down and, and Harris got a lung full of half of it was water kind of thing and did eventually get the air and uh, uh, but was terrified yeah. rightly so and then you know he's a professional what does he have to do the next day is get back in the fucking tank yeah. and, and hold his breath again right and uh, certainly don't want to Pretend that in, that a, a big movie star's acting job is a really like important thing compared to what so many other people pour their work into every day, but like that's really earning your paycheck as an <laughs> actor right there. Uh, he was getting paid a lot of money, I'm sure, to do that movie, but um, he. It's he, not worth your life. Yeah, it's and not worth your life. Right. That's and, it's got to be some pretty good holding your breath while we drag you across yeah. an underwater movie set money. And I think he realized that to, to Jim Cameron it was worth his life. And I think that lost, you know, his respect. Um, we should get back to the plot because we said we were going to try not to get derailed by the behind the scenes. Yes, we're totally we, getting derailed by the behind the scenes. We kind of did, but I was just wanting to finish up. We, I did get sidetracked with the descent that Ed Harris, Ed Harris's character, we all believe that he's going to die at the bottom of the trench. Right. And then he's miraculously saved by the aliens. The aliens miraculously allow everybody to come back to the surface without dying of, uh, of depressurization, yeah, whatever, depressurization sickness. Um, and that's where so many of the movie's problems manifest, is right in that tail end section, because I think it's safe to say that narratively, Bud should have died. Yeah. Um, just going back very briefly to the resuscitation scene, because everybody talks about that, and I do think it's amazing. I also just think the scene in the sub where she drowns oh in front of him, the idea of, like, he starts off like they're getting a divorce and he hates her, but he clearly doesn't hate her. They have this love-hate relationship. Right. And uh, she's right in everything she says. You put on the suit, you're the better swimmer, you're going to be able to get us out of here. She, he's already got the suit and on. And he's already got the suit on, and they're, they're, it's flooding rapidly. But he knows she's right, and he knows that this is the only option, but that plan involves him sitting across from her and while watching she drowns. Her drown. And from her perspective, it involves her drowning. drowning. right? And that is played so good. And as he's swimming back with her body, telling all of the crew, I need this, I need this, I need everybody right fucking now. Like, it's super intense. And it's so intense, like, it feels like after that happens and after they're reunited, there's no more bigger climax for the, the movie. The movie to reach. never gets that dramatic again. Ever again. No. And it's not even necessarily a bad thing because I wouldn't change anything about those scenes. But you're right. Once we get to the aliens make everything better, or in the director's cut, the aliens show that they have the power to drown the world. They raise, you know, mile high tsunamis all across the globe. And then hit pause. <laughs> right. So, like, they can control the ocean to a ridiculous degree. If they want to wipe us out, they can. And it's basically, okay, we're here. Hello. Stop fucking it up. And it's so simple, where everything else about the movie had not been so simple, mm -hmm. that it just doesn't feel like the right ending for the movie. I it, still love the movie, but the ending does disappoint it, it me. Come, it, feels like it, it doesn't feel like it. It does come out of nowhere. The movie simply isn't about that until the movie 
becomes about, about that. And it really doesn't work to the movie's credit because the movie was already about several really interesting, compelling, even relevant things, right? Like without without hit, beating you over the head with it, the movie is sort of talking about should we be mining the depths of the ocean for petroleum. Is it interesting that that uh, James Cameron has benthic petroleum is the yeah. name of of uh, his company that I think is supposed to be loosely fashioned after British Petroleum or BP now. You see it in about 3 frames of Terminator 2. But there it on is. the freeway chase, you see a benthic petroleum uh, station in the background but um, a lot of Cameron's movies very subtly seem to be making commentary about uh, uh, great big businesses doing yeah. scary things anyway th- that's a, a tangent because I don't think Cameron's actually trying to do much other than entertain with most of his movies Cameron would say he didn't have any weaknesses I will say his weaknesses as a writer I think that he can be heavy-handed in some of his dialogue. And I think that the first two-thirds of The Abyss is his some of his very best work, as far as not hitting it too hard. But yes, I do think that the scene between Elizabeth Master, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and uh, Ed Harris, as he's sinking into The Abyss and starting to lose it, and starting, well, they think he's hallucinating when he starts seeing lights below him. She's trying to talk, him and, uh, talk to him and keep him very together. And in the theatrical cut... It, it makes sense, and it does the job. I think it's a little bit cheesy, but I can deal with it. In the director's cut, it's thrice the length, I think, and it's too much. It's it is too much. Too much. For, the, for the pace of the movie, it's too much. It's not too much if we want... And I, He gets to the bottom of a two-mile drop mm-hmm. pretty dang quick, quick. Yeah. which is fine. The movie is really long, even the theatrical cut. Um, just to hit on something before I forget, I think it's kind of one of the uh, plot flaws of the movie. I find it difficult to believe that she would make the assumption he's hallucinating because she's been she's seeing seen glowing too. lights. She's, she's fucking touched one at this yeah. point. Her hand glided across it. It was like a dance of light. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, yeah. bud. But and now, now you're hallucinating because you see glowing things at the bottom of the trench. Yeah. It feels like Cameron was, like, what is he, George Lucas? Is he finishing the script <laughs> as they go? Um, he wasn't. The movie, he, but he clearly seems to know that the end of his movie is a mess because when he goes back in to cut the director's cut, it's significantly different and it's not just longer, it's different takes, it's different stuff. The big problem with the tsunami, beyond it being sort of uh, anticlimactic anticlimactic and out of nowhere, is that the the big mind-boggling special effects sequence has happened already. It's that water tentacle. And none of those tsunami are anywhere near as interesting to look at as that water tentacle which was the sort of practice round for what he would do a few years later with Terminator 2 and the liquid Terminator special effects right there's this water tentacle that reaches out of the diving pool that they have in Sea Lab and goes snaking around all Mm -hmm. the way looking for the nuclear weapon it's actually the second first like completely computer generated character Uh, I think young Sherlock Holmes beat it just barely into the theaters with theirs Mm. but uh, that whole water tentacle yeah you can't not think of Terminator 2 when you first see it now because, uh, but uh, it was cutting edge special effects and that sequence where the, the water being mirrors Mary Elizabeth's Master Tony's face and everything Amazing. like that yeah. uh, it's still impressive today and at the time it, your jaw was on the fucking oh, floor yeah, I was just in awe <laughs> yeah. of, of the looks of those and, and you take the 
that's one of the few computer effects in the movie. Almost everything else is practical. Yeah. Uh, even when they're not shooting with real subs in real tanks full of water, there's a lot of stuff when it's models on smoke-filled sound stages, and it looks great. Great, right? There are little things you can tell. There are little uh, uh, tiny uh, CCD screens inside the models showing like little video of Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio steering it. I find that kind of thing charming yeah. because the movie's 1989. I can watch it and it doesn't break the movie for me. The rest of it is so real because it is real. These watch people it. are under <laughs> meters of water filming this stuff with actual Equipment. danger. Yeah. There's real danger involved and a lot of people very nearly uh, you know, were pretty seriously hurt. And that, uh, you know, I'm getting sidetracked into it again. <laughs> watch The Abyss and if you love The Abyss, watch the, 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 the making of the abyss, and if uh, if you don't love the abyss, don't bother. But that director's cut, it's sort of, or that making of is kind of uh, what's the one that Apocalypse Now did? Hearts, Hearts of, Darkness. of Darkness was it's the, the Hearts the of scenes. Darkness for the Abyss, yeah, and it's almost as interesting it, as the movie. It, yeah. it, that's it's very similar in that both are yeah. almost as interesting as the movies themselves. I do want to wrap this up because we're approaching a half an hour on the Wowzers. abyss, but that's okay. It's a big movie. Um, I would never tell anyone not to watch the abyss. Please watch the abyss. In fact, allow me to finish where I started. I love the abyss. I love the abyss for its ambition and even for some of its flaws. Um, it's not a perfect movie, but few movies are. But it is a movie that will stand the test of time. It's a movie that people will continue to talk about. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you should be part of the conversation. So right. Be- it's, it's, it has aged very well. The lack of very much pop... Like, there's very little popular music in it. We don't see... Uh, there's no popular fashion in it. It feels yeah. very timeless. And I think people will hopefully be appreciating the movie for a long time. I will. And I hope they release The Damned... Uh, high okay. res cut. I want to see it in uh, in high definition. The highest you can get if you uh, are internet savvy is you can get a 720 version of it that was made and aired on uh, in high definition on television. But that's as good as you can get. And that's the one you and I watched yeah. actually, and it looked pretty nice. But if you haven't seen The Abyss, shame on you. Yeah, and, and if- you heard it here first on Rank and Review. There was a time where Jim Cameron actually did live up to the hype. <laughs> Yeah, and then True Lies happened, and things changed. Downhill from there. Yeah, the 90s. More human than human is our motto. What if I go north? Disappear. Would you come after me? I know you would, but somebody would. It's too bad she won't live! to die. Will you help us? That seems to be the problem. Death. I want more life. An experiment. Nothing more. Nothing more. More human than human is our motto. So, uh, Ridley Scott, having had tremendous success merging the genres of horror and science fiction with Alien, thought... What if I did a blending of science fiction and, like, a gumshoe detective story? Some noir. Yeah, so we have this sci-fi noir starring Harrison Ford about Deckard, who is hired to hunt down these escaped androids, I guess we'd call them robots. Androids, cyborgs. Uh, by the way, Lindsay is her name in the abyss. But Yes, it's, thank you. <laughs> it's the not-too-distant-but-pretty-distant future. Uh, androids are slaves. 
we've enslaved them. They live for four years. Sometimes they get angry about it. Deckard hunts them down and kills them, or at least he used to. Yeah. Before he quit. There's they're very fully formed beings though, and they're aware. They're emotional. Yeah, they're aware of their running clock, and like us, are terrified of the idea of death. So these these uh, robots have gone rogue. They're trying to get in touch with their creator and figure out a way to get an extension plan on their life. Right. Meanwhile, Harrison Ford is actively trying to end their lives. So that's the basic setup for the story. Um, Honestly, I kind of grew into Blade Runner. I found a I talked about recently on the show Rosemary's Baby, which is a completely different animal than this. But and that when I saw that movie when I was young, I didn't really get what we had to grow into it. We were five when it came out. out. Yeah. Yeah. But I was of the age of, you know, Harrison Ford was Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford was Han Solo. So when I sat down to watch a science fiction movie starring Harrison Ford, I was expecting it to be wall-to-wall action spectacle. Right. It is spectacle. It is not action. No. Um, That's okay, but just know what you're getting into. And as a younger person, I didn't. So it wasn't until, like, high school, university age, when, like, I think I saw a reissue, when they did the director's cut, maybe, Mm. uh, that I actually really properly appreciated the movie. When I really properly noticed Blade Runner was uh, when we were both, you and I were both at U of S, and the Philosophy Club had a uh, it was a movie club and that was one of the movies on the roster of six or something for the year was Blade Runner and I didn't go to that discussion because you know (laughs) why (laughs) you were saving it for this I was saving it for this and (laughs) I already had a a group of people I really enjoyed talking about movies with that was when I thought hey I should watch Blade Runner again it's been a long time and when I did watch Blade Runner for the next time after that um dove into it in a way that I hadn't to before because I'd been eight. Right. Whenever it first came out on VHS, uh, I have vague memories of seeing the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner with the narration intact right. that uh, uh, really takes away from the tone and, and tension of the movie. That Blade Runner, more than most sci-fi movies that have ever been made, world builds almost without... Never feels like it's trying to build the world that the characters inhabit. It feels like the world was already built when we it's got there to watch waiting it. For us. Yeah. I can't put my finger on how uh, Ridley Scott accomplishes that, other than the fact that um, he did so much of it real for real. We were talking about that with the Abyss. It feels so real. They built a huge, massive ridiculous, sets. massive sets and populated them with with characters and spent a lot of money, costumes and designing things, and they. Uh, had people speaking that sort of patois of Chinese and and Indian uh, languages and English all sort of mashed together. It felt very organically. Uh, well, it ended. It didn't at the time. It ended up defining what we think of as this sort of uh, uh, dystopian cyberpunk noir future. That Blade Runner uh, created that category of sci-fi movie. Right. There have been a few since then. There have been imitators of Blade Runner and there's been a sequel. And as we mentioned in the introduction, I haven't seen the sequel yet. And yeah. so we're going to talk about this movie. And I, I'm, I will we'll, not talk about the sequel. but No, I, but Paxton will watch the sequel yay. when we've done this and then, you know, maybe... We can actually have a conversation about that. We'll see um, if it changes my opinion. If it does, I might have to come back and talk about it more. I like Blade Runner way more than I did as a kid, but I don't think I'm as close to it as most people are. In fact, I mean, I like to let movies age before I really weigh in with the hard hyperbole, but 
right now sitting here in this room, I would say that I actually prefer the sequel to Blade Runner to the original. I don't know if that's necessarily controversial. I guess other people have said that as well, but um, I, I like the movie. I think it's not something that I return to a lot because a the nature of the story is a gumshoe detective thing, which is kind of slow reveals. The turns of the plot is more information, more than like car chases or, 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 or you know, kung fu fighting, right. which is fine. But on top of that, um, the the background that's going on, this world that Ridley Scott's showing us, he really, really is lavishing in it. Uh, not like we're going to talk about in, in Children of Men how everything's sort of happening in the background. Not so much with Blade Runner. Blade Runner, the camera just lusciously shows you everything. Right. And that and the narrative slow down the proceedings. Mm -hmm. And And for somebody who didn't watch it in the early 80s or mid-80s or whenever, there are, unlike The Abyss, there are things that date this movie. One of them is the music, which is they're going for a noir uh, thing and it works. There's some sexy horns going on in there uh, during the rather controversial and rapey scene. Where <laughs> in the uh, is that only in the director's cut or is it present in the theatrical version? The I scene where Decker smacks her around a bit. I'm pretty sure it's in both, but I could be wrong about that. The internet will let me know. Yeah, we'll have to check because I think that might only be present in in this version. Um, the movie does feel dated when I watch it now. We rescreened this. God, it had to, has to have been a months year ago, ago now. <laughs> months ago, I'm not sure. Uh, in preparation for this episode, and it felt more dated to me this time than the last time I watched it. Like markedly more so, but it still feels uh, so real and visceral when you're down there in in the streets. And for the time it came out, it's an incredible movie. It's like, like again, I, I, it sounds sort of like I'm talking shit about it. All of these things are fine, and they're, they're conscious choices that the movie makes. But when I'm looking to be lost in spellbinding science fiction, I will probably go to the Abyss more often than I would go to Blade Runner, mm. uh, personally. That's yep. just my personal taste thing, right? Although if I'm, if I'm uh, teaching a class in sci-fi movie lit kind yeah. of thing... And I have room to talk about eight science fiction movies. I'm probably talking Blade Runner before Abyss. Yeah. If I'm going to be talking about uh, genre defi- definitions, or if I'm going to be talking about just the uh, the broad sweep of the history of mainstream sci-fi movies, The Abyss is a great movie, but it didn't, uh, and it broke a lot of new ground, technically speaking. Yeah. It didn't break a lot of new ground as far as redefining the sci-fi genre which Blade Runner did so to such a point that it influenced later Star Wars movies right like George Lucas's designs for the streets of Coruscant are just lifted right out of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner right it's just a busier Blade Runner somehow yeah agreed a more computer generated Blade Runner yeah have you ever seen the the picture of Carrie Fisher hanging out on the set of Blade Runner. Oh yeah, and she's so, she looks so hot. She's so coked up and dressed so outrageously <laughs> that she looks like she fits right into the, in the to the crazy too. cyberpunk future I, people. I think that this movie is Rudger Hauer's high watermark, which isn't to say that Rudger Hauer's done only shit after this. He's done a lot of shit after this, but I, I don't think he's a bad actor. Rudger Hauer is the antagonist of the story for those of yeah. of you who for some reason haven't seen Blade Runner. He's the leader of the replicants, they're called these androids. There's a group of four or five of them who've escaped 
captivity and and slavery and as you said have come back to earth to confront their father and yeah. find out their incept date meaning like, when they were born unlike how us how can we live longer and he he's uh, he turns out to be a rather good fellow yeah. in the end better in a well, way than Deckard himself which is where he's motivated He's motivated. He does some pretty awful things, but he doesn't do them just because muhahaha evil. <laughs> he he does with his final act at least prove himself to be capable of things that in in everyone's experience only human beings can can uh, truly forgive somebody, Empathy, right? Yeah. Or, or you know the the ending of Blade Runner is unlike many of the movies on this list I don't have problems with the ending of Blade no. Runner no, Blade they Runner do not has, stick the landing at all <laughs> no they, uh, I think you mean they do stick or the they, landing right like they, they hit the landing they right? Yeah. that's what you're saying yeah. okay I was confused for a moment there <laughs> sorry no I gotcha they do uh, hit the landing or nail the ending however the ending is something that is controversial it's yeah. not just, even just controversial it's straight up different yeah. depending on which version of the movie you watch and the ending is different depending on whether or not you are Ridley Scott yeah. or whether or not you are Harrison, Harrison Ford. Ford. Uh, although yeah. this is a, a topic that I'm more ignorant on than you are because you've seen the sequel, you know what the mm-hmm. world ends up deciding about that. Where I sit and where I stand on this, having only seen the first one and preferring this version, is that Deckard, the main character, is indeed himself a replicant without There's knowing a strong so. case to be made that the movie's telling us this. Um, but it's interesting that the two creative components of it battle over it. The funny thing to me is that as much as Deckard is the main character of the movie, to me the character that Rudger Hauer plays is by far the most fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been seeing a lot more complex villains, but that suffer from the same flaw. Uh, where the, the, we, They give them really good, clear motivations, but they're just a hair too evil about how they go about doing things. I think a case can be made that the villain of the story is Tyrol or Tyrol, yeah. right? The guy who created these replicants and is toying with human souls, basically, is what he's doing when he creates these people. And that it can be, you can look at it as Rutger Hauer is actually, he's, well, we're all protagonists in our own story, right? Yeah. But you could very easily make the movie about him and have Deckard be the shadowy agent character who's pursuing our hero as he tries to confront his sort of evil stepfather creator and find out the mystery of of his creation right i I just i like that character so much i almost wish the movie was about him i almost wish that likely and that means he's a great villain and uh, maybe the movie about him wouldn't be as good maybe the fact that we only get bits and pieces of i think the movie really is about him yeah but and the idea of uh it kind of reminds me of the few good ideas that came out of prometheus like a robot can meet its creator Mm -hmm. but it's kind of disappointed by the creator right Deidre uh, right <laughs> well yeah it's just like um, there's a whole you know mission in Prometheus where they're trying to the man want, wants to meet their god meet their creator and this robot sitting there helping them do this and get ready to be disappointed mm-hmm. <laughs> right I've never put this together until making that crack just now but it's interesting to me that only three years apart those two movies, Star Trek the Motion Picture and Blade Runner are released and both of them are about an artificial intelligence wanting to meet its father and willing to kill to do so. It's just that one of them is Gene Roddenberry-esque and everybody's shiny happy people and the other one is a dystopian uh, horror world. Like it's a nightmarish place where these people live. 
such a great movie. I love Blade Runner. You love Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. This is a movie where I wouldn't be surprised if it falls on slightly different places on our list, yeah. though. However, don't. Uh, I'm not going to make the mistake of confusing influential and uh, uh, avant-garde within its genre and all of those sorts of things is necessarily making it a great movie. Right. I'm, I, I'm not shocked and appealed when you say Blade Runner 2049, is it? I believe so, yeah. Called? Is, is a better movie in your opinion. Uh, right my, now, today, I would say that. My brother is one of, the, one of the other people I know and whose opinions I respect about movies most of the time. Sometimes he's just dead wrong. Yeah. Well, again, I don't want to hype it too much for <laughs> but you. But I'm just saying, <laughs> you didn't uh, shock me horribly when, when you told me that. Right. Uh, Blade Runner's not a movie where you're going to really hurt my feelings if I show it to you and you're a little bored. Yeah. Right? Blade Runner's a slow-moving uh, gumshoe movie that happens to be set in a terrible future, and I love it. You don't have to. I enjoy talking about Blade Runner almost more than I enjoy watching Blade Runner. I mm. think like the ideas in the movie, it's grand, epic sci-fi. It's like baseball that way, I guess. For people <laughs> who like baseball, yeah, you'd rather it, talk about It's almost more fun to talk it. about than yeah. to watch. And that, that's that's way too unkind, because I would never tell anyone not to watch Blade Runner. But I think you know what I'm trying to say. I, I would say once you've seen Blade Runner twice then it becomes more interesting to talk about Blade Runner than watch it a third time. Yeah, it time. doesn't have the repeat of viewings that, like I said, I the wouldn't Abyss sit and watch like Blade Runner again unless it, what well, we did for this podcast, but I can't imagine another circumstance where I would sit and watch Blade Runner with someone who already has seen and knows Blade Runner, right? I've seen the movie too many times to do that. I would only sit and watch it to show it to somebody who's never seen it or yeah. for this podcast. I could, I could imagine showing watching it with my son at some point. Oh, yeah. Like, like again, I, I'm not done with Blade Runner or anything like that. I do like it. It's just, uh, I look at this stack of movies and most of these I will are much more likely to come off the shelf before Blade Runner. Something else we didn't address here. Now, I was way too young for Alien when Alien came out. I'm sure I saw Blade Runner before I saw Alien. This was my first exposure to hard R sci-fi. Right. Right. What was this rated when it was released theatrically? It was rated R. It ought to be. Alien was rated R as well. (laughs) But uh, for me personally, this was the first um, sci-fi movie where people Shit felt real. Yeah, (laughs) and where the hero would just like straight up murder somebody who we knew as viewers (laughs) really didn't deserve it and shouldn't be dead right when he I can't remember the Pris is that the character no Pris is the uh, the character played by Daryl Hannah Daryl Hannah I'm talking about the other woman that he goes and chases down she's working as a stripper and yeah I know she's you. got the fake snake and he blows her away in the street uh, which she calls is one her of the more class. Mem- yeah right yeah. one of the more memorable sequences one of the few action sequences in the yeah. movie and it's just a stone cold execution shot in the back right? as she it's, runs away it's brutal yeah that's yeah. our hero and again they play that note well and again it's the classic sort of morality thing and I like that they stay true to that gumshoe genre that you're not guaranteed a happy ending or like they'll solve the puzzle but it won't necessarily be the answer you want Right. The happiest version of the ending is the theatrical version in which yeah, they he, escape together they to an escape, uncertain future. They drive off together into literally into a suns, uh, sunrise or yeah. sunset, if I remember. Uh, this is the ending I prefer where he shows up expecting her maybe to be dead, right? Her yeah. apartment door is ajar. People are coming to kill her. He's trying to, to spirit her away to safety, even though she's only got a few years to live at best because blah, blah, blah. 
when he gets there, he finds the origami crane of the of the horse. The unicorn. The unicorn. That's the indicator to us that this other character, the Edward James Olmos character, knows Deckard's dreams. How could that be possible? I am a proponent of the theory that that's because Edward James Olmos' character is the actual, real, living Blade Runner whose memories they used to build at least the skill set of the Deckard replicant, right? Uh, and that's why they share some memories. When we first meet, I can't remember his name, uh, but the Ejo, Edward James Olmos character, almost. he's walking with a limp, etc., etc. They might have just taken all of his uh, blade running <laughs> skills and smacked him into Deckard and turned him on right at the beginning of the movie when we first meet him. Playing with ideas of identity and fate, right? right. So this is what I'm so they, about. <laughs> he gets to her Sean Young's apartment. She's the the replicant who's unique, at least so we're told, in that she doesn't know she's a replicant right. and is left to figure this out for herself. We, at least I, know watching the movie that Deckard also is a replicant who doesn't know he's a replicant, but he we don't know that he doesn't know until the very end of the movie. He sees the the unicorn, and if you're paying attention, we understand from that knowing look that he gives it that like. Okay, well, he was here. He's letting us go. We get the voiceover as the cue, but if you're really watching, he's, what else can it mean is my question. He's becoming the Rutger Howard character. Right. I think that's where it's going through. Um, and and so, that's where the movie sticks the landing. The yeah. other movie, which I haven't watched that theatrical cut. We really need to put a disclaimer on that. I'm not familiar with it the way I am with the Abyss uh, theatrical cut. Right. That Blade Runner theatrical cut is even hard to find now, I think, mm-hmm. with the with the narration in it. Unless yeah, you buy the they don't version. set it up as much. They don't do as much of the work, and the ending is much more bleak. That, that's the main thing. But that's a drastic difference, and I've always really questioned that. Like, If the director's cut is more scenes, just to give us more exposition, more character stuff like that, I get it. They had to make some tough cuts for the theater, and they're going to give it to you in, in your home experience. But if the ending's completely different, if they're two different movies, that's usually when I kind of question. Like, <laughs> Dude, if you're making a movie this big, this expensive, and this epic, maybe come in with a plan. <laughs> right. Definitely. <laughs> but... We're still talking about it, and again, we'll still continue to talk about it. And, and like I said, profitable maybe the con- sequels are yeah. now being made about a profitable and critically successful sequel. Yeah. People who love Blade Runner like you do were satiated and pleased by Blade Runner too. And I want a conversation piece out of a science fiction movie, and it is that. So, like again, if you think I'm talking shit about Blade Runner, you're wrong. Yes, please, and thank you, sir. I'm sorry about the theatrics. Police have been a pain lately. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years. I need your help. Not for me, a girl. I need to get her to the coast, past security checkpoints. It's hard for me to look at you. He had your eyes. So why did you come to me? I trust you. Show him. Now you know it's at stake. to meet the boat. What is this boat? The human project of sent a boat. The human project? Yes, the greatest minds in the world working for a new society. Your baby is the miracle the whole world has been waiting for. We will find a way to get you to the human project, I promise you. We're almost there, Keith. We're almost there.
so I just screened with you like a week ago, Children of Men, and it almost seemed like a new experience to you. You'd seen you'd seen it before. Yes, like ages ago when it first got DVD release. So I would guess like two thousand seven. Uh, it's set in the uh, near future where everything's gone wrong. Uh, women are no longer able to have babies. The youngest person in the world has recently been killed in basically a bar brawl. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And he was like a 19 or something like this. Yeah. And there's all sorts of faction and terrorist groups and everybody's really concerned with citizenship. And we basically are looking at sort of this sort of sectioned off area of Europe where things are relatively together. We get the idea that outside the walls, outside the city. Outside of England. Yeah. Outside of anything where you're not a citizen of England, it's fucking chaos. Right. <laughs> it's the Wild West and then some. And we learn all of this just in the background of shots, as the movie is mainly following Clive Owen's character as he gets wrapped up in this, I guess, radical group that's led by his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend, ex-love of Played his by life. Julianne Moore. Played by Julian Moore. And uh, things get ratcheted up quickly, stakes get really high, and he gets identified as part of this group, and he finds himself in this real conundrum. And the focus of their energies is that they have found a pregnant woman. The first one who's been seen in, what, 18 years? She's called Key, which is maybe the only on-the-nose thing about the movie for me. There are a few. There are a few, but that one feels particularly on-the-nose. They want to keep this girl safe, but some of the members of the group kind of want to use her. Having this person is a very powerful pivoting point. Right. So she's this sought-after... Political pawn for a lot of people. So it gets put upon Clive Owen to keep this girl safe and try and get her in the right people's hands. And that's basically the movie. Right. And it's fucking amazing. It is a very (laughs) well-told, very well-told story in a lot of ways. My question to you, to start, is I was surprised, like, that you didn't have big memories of the movie because it really made an impression on me when I saw it. Like, I just recognized it as a fantastic piece of filmmaking Mm -hmm. on top of being amazing sci-fi. So why do you think it didn't land the first time? I'm curious. Yeah, that'd be a good question for me to go back and ask myself 12 years ago. Like, (laughs) hey, how come you didn't just pay a little closer attention to that movie the first time through? I think that might have been all it was. The wrong movie on the wrong day. I understand. It's a movie that requires active watching. Yeah. Right. And those are generally my favorite kinds of movies but you you watch a movie in a distracted headspace and it might end up on the shelf when it was a brilliant movie and it just sort of passed you by the first time and that must have been what happened to me yeah. with children of men it's a very well made movie uh, on a lot of levels now you said it's an adaptation from a, a novel, novel that yeah. I'm not familiar with I haven't read the novel no yeah but the efficiency of the storytelling from both a script standpoint and just the way that it's uh, that it's shot is remarkable. Uh, that That's what got me the second time anyway. I screened it twice, once with you, and then again a second time because I just really, this is a tough list. Yeah. <laughs> and there's one shot, the movie is all about these great, huge one-shot sequences that, as you pointed out, uh, was it your sister you said? <laughs> I can't remember who you were mentioning, didn't even realize. Oh, yeah. Maybe it was no, your mum. I was talking to my mum about Birdman at the time. That was but Birdman. Yeah. But, okay. yeah, the, how impressed I was a with these long style. shots. And she was like, what long? What are you really talking about? Right. <laughs> Some people don't notice that. But for me, any kind of shot that goes on for, like, six minutes is kind of impressive because it's, like, basically you're filming Especially stage play and there's a lot that can go wrong. Huge action.
action sequence. But yeah, he does fucking meticulous action sequences, incredibly complex camera moves, and they go on and on. 360 and on. degree <laughs> shots. It's amazing. Right? He's, he's sort of, I hadn't had this thought until now, but he might be ahead of the curve on VR movie making, right? right? Where you might, for an action sequence, have to stage a great big six minute long set piece battle with all choreographed and then film it in 360 degrees so yeah. that people can look around as it's happening right? the lack of cutting builds the tension so much you're so mm -hmm. locked in with them that it's just you're stuck right it's there. riveting that's why like I, when I first watched the movie I was so into it and you don't feel safe ever Never. ever in this movie even more than really really well done uh, realistic action sequences like think uh, Band of Brothers right. stuff, right? Because we have that fixed viewpoint, we're always with the Clive Owen character. In that great big uh, sequence toward the end of the movie where he's going in to get Key and then bring her back out safely uh, going into the building, right? Um, you get a sense of, of uh, geography, where things are coming from, where's the government coming from, where the rebel forces are, everybody's running around, and because that camera just never stops, you get a real sense of, of place that you don't get in even the best stories just because the camera con it comes unanchored yeah. and moves around. And it very rarely feels like we jump from place to place in the movie. It's, it's a remarkably told story. But even just, uh, I was talking to you before we rolled earlier tonight about that shot that gives the Michael Caine character's backstory where we pan across his, his bulletin desk board. Base, yeah. And we just, in... 30 seconds are given the, all of the backstory that we need for Jasper's character. We figure out he was a political cartoonist. His wife was a was an award-winning uh, photojournalist until she was targeted, tortured by the yeah. CIA, I believe it was, and is no longer able to speak. Nobody talks about it, but we know all of it. Yeah. Right. And he's done. He's retired. He just smokes weed and listens to Radiohead. Grows weed, yeah. He represents the safe haven, so we like him, but no in our hearts. He's not going to live through the movie. <laughs> he's marked for death the moment we like him. <laughs> exactly. It's one of those movies. Exactly. Um, here's the interesting thing, I think, about Children of Men. I think as far as the dystopian sci-fi story, there are a lot of very familiar elements in it. I think the fact that it's shot so brilliantly actually kind of overcomes and distracts from that. Mm. Uh, like, I don't think it's bad necessarily. It's just, it feels really fresh, but when you break it down, the... the the, the pieces of the board are all very, very familiar. Yeah. But it feels really invigorated. It, it's sort of like how James Wan made a new exorcism movie that felt fresh, mm. like 40 years after The Exorcist, where no one thought it was possible. He He's telling the same story, but he's telling it so, so well. well. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, there is a safe haven, and that safe haven is destroyed. And, yeah, there is a rebel group, but it's falling apart because of internal friction and right. like there's all of these things that not necessarily should be you know s surprises mm -hmm. it, the movie felt really timely for us to watch now because of the uh, insanity going on with immigration in Europe and in the United States and the the new rise of a sort of neo-fascism that some of us smell in the air it's not just a smell in yeah. the air right it's happening uh, it's horrifying to be sitting here with that happening but the movie has a lot to do spends a lot of time dealing with uh, one of the things going on even though the core problem is women can't make babies anymore yep. uh, there's also this uh, 
uh, xenophobic reaction among the British people that like it's been there's no such thing as, as illegal immigration and legal immigration anymore right. if you aren't uh, a proven like citizen a citizen of Britain you're uh, I think natural born citizen too even if you emigrated there earlier you were thrown out of Britain and people were are being caged and yeah. it's really quite uh, Nazi-esque, right, what we're seeing going on in the movie, and it's beyond what's going on in the real world today, but the the movie in that regard, ignoring the, the fertility problem piece of things, felt a little bit prescient to watch it now in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the, it, the stuff with the people needing their papers and being put in literal cages couldn't be more relevant today, right now. Right. Um... But things like Clive Owens lost a child, so he ends up delivering the first baby, or helping in the in the birth of the first baby of this new generation, would seem narratively on the nose. Except mm. while you're watching it, it's fucking amazing. Mm. Would we be as shocked by spoilers Julian Moore's death if it hadn't been handled the way it was? It's not that Julian Moore dies that I think is the shock. It's, it's the worst stuck in the car with them as they try and escape. With her, as she as slowly she bleeds, bleeds out, out in front of us, right? Right. I think that the story structure, the uh, yeah, the, the the burden of key was going to be shifted from Julian Moore to Clive Owen. That was going to happen. Yes. But when that bullet hits Julian Moore in the throat, you're like, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> like it's just holy shit. Yes. Um, and that's a real accomplishment. <laughs> It, yeah, well, especially for a jaded movie watcher like yourself, <laughs> right. no, that, that's strong wording, but you know the tricks, right? right? And so uh, people like us, when we watch a movie like that, it does impress me when when something like that catches me a little bit off yeah. guard. There's a flashy piece of camera work that uh, Yann Debunk developed when he was DOPing Cujo, where they mounted a camera inside a car, and they could move the camera really fluidly throughout the car and do these long shots and get dynamics in it. And I think they basically took that premise, but they put it in a moving car. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember how long the scene lasts, but they talk. It's a couple in, of minutes. They talk in the car for a good long time. They have dynamic between them. Then the, the the road is blocked. The initial attack on the car. Then the motorcycle shoots. Then they back out of that. And I think it finally cuts when the they they hear the police sirens. But like it's. A ridiculously long shot. We know we learn so much in it. We lose one of our major characters in it, and the stakes went from crazy high to off the fucking cliff. And stuntmen go flying. Yeah, right? like they work quite impressive physical stunt work into some of these huge one shot takes. Anything, like if anything goes wrong, it's going to be a couple days to set up take two. Right? Exactly. Like, and it, like clean up on aisle six in between some of the big pyrotechnics, right? If you have to reset for a big action sequence where stuff's blown up, yeah, come back next week. And if you're not impressed by the long takes and the technical filmmaking, be impressed by the the CGI. The baby that the delivery delivers, of the baby is amazing. It's very well handled. It's one of those things. I think I said when we watched it. I'm not necessarily fooled that that's a real birth. But it's a CGI birth, but it doesn't seem gratuitous. And it's better than what we usually get, which is get the mother is handed like an eight-month-old baby. Exactly. Like, how did that come out of a human being? And with all of these shots they're going to be doing with her carrying the baby through all of this, like, gunfire and explosions and shit like that, are they going to use it? Of course they're not going to use it. Yeah, baby. and it's so, like, straight-up first movie in my lifetime, in my experience, that I've seen, like, believable... Uh, newborn coming out of like straight up coming right out the vajuter hole. Yeah. 
on there, and it's needed for the story. I want to jump over, though, if we can, yep. to Key yep. and her performance uh, and her character, which I think is just wonderfully written, and she was awesome. Key is, uh, what is her name? I have to look it up. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Her name is Claire Hope Ashity, A-S-H-I-T-E-Y. Like, it almost sounds like a joke name, Ashiti. 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 Uh, but she, I think she's she, strong. Yeah. I don't know what else she's in. I'm going to pull it up. Uh, not that it matters. Her her performance I thought was magnificent, and um, oh, that's what I wanted to talk about is the ending of the movie. Endings, Larry, on these high-minded sci-fi movies, as we were hinting about before. The movie spoilers doesn't really end so much as stop. Right. Right. Because uh, we're so locked into Clive Owen. When Clive Owen stops, so do we, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's... I, As I said, I watched the movie twice this time around, and I was less satisfied by the ending the second time through than I was the first time through. I still really liked the movie, but I, I wanted a little bit more, especially considering the fact that the Clive Owen character, there's a question earlier in the movie about whether or not to keep her, like whether or not the fish, which is the name of the sort of terrorist or uh, rebel group that is trying to protect Key when we meet her. Uh, Clive Owen suggests they just make it public and give her to the government sort of thing because they'll protect her. There is a strong argument to be made, I think, that that might have been the wisest course yeah. of action because the fish end up just being nothing but bad news. Uh, and at the end of the movie, we don't get the satisfaction of knowing for sure whether getting to the human project turned out to be a good thing for Key and It was as for close to a hopeful ending as this not. world was going to allow us, I think. Fair enough. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that much, definitely. Uh, but that doesn't make for necessarily a satisfying ending. Right. How do you tack a satisfying... I don't want a tacked-on satisfying ending to a story that's supposed to make you think, make you feel, it's supposed to excite you, it's supposed to give you tension and then release of tension. It's not supposed to... Yeah. Tie even if have like a tied up happy ending if a screen of text had lit up and said they used key to repopulate the world and everyone lived happily ever after it would feel would completely, no more satisfying an ending it would feel disingenuous to the rest of the movie almost. and you certainly didn't hear me having voicing these sorts of complaints against Blade Runner right. which has an equally nihilistic if not vibe more sort of yeah nihilistic vibe and uh, gray area in the ending Right, I can't believe we reviewed Blade Runner in 18 minutes. Fast forward. <laughs> we did well. I mean, how did we do that? It's craziness. Um, you were talking about the efficiency of the dialogue and just the way the inter uh, information is is parsed out. Mm. We hear that Clive Owen had a, a woman that he loved with red hair from the Michael Caine character, from Jasper, the first yeah. time we meet him, and then when he's kidnapped, the first person we see is this woman with red hair, which we immediately associate, and then we learn not only were they together, and again, it's weird that Michael Caine's character didn't make more of this, that they had a child together, and they lost a child together, and it's not it's really strange that he not didn't a, make more of it, because it's not a scene of dialogue, you don't bring that, that up, right? that's right, like, it's not a scene of dialogue that covers it, it's a line, it's one line that covers it, yeah. and again, efficiency. And it establishes who they are to one another and their history together and why they're estranged all in one sentence. Yeah. It's it's remarkably well-written, well-photographed, uh, well-acted, well-directed. Some of the most impressive stunt work and just, uh, what do you even call it? Uh, it's like stage direction, sort yeah. of, even though it's a movie. It's, it's uh, 
a whole city block full of soldiers and refugees and people running and blowing up and dying in machine gun fire. Hundreds of extras. Squibs, explosives. I'm sure a lot of it accented with CGI, but very well. Definitely, yeah. And, and like, riveting. <laughs> very riveting. If you haven't seen Children of Men, watch it. We say that about a lot of these movies. Yep. You, you're, We all enjoy these movies, otherwise we wouldn't talk about them. Most of them. We have to talk about the Matrix <laughs> At later. some point, we'll get there. <laughs> Children of Men is going to be... Uh, there's been a lot of thought put into me by where that's going to land this movie by me in the past week because it's sort of fresh fresh to me and a lot of these movies aren't and are beloved to me I'm still not 100% sure where it's going to go on the list I know <laughs> I have two choices uh, we're going to find out strong supporting work I just wanted to shout out Chiwetel Ejiofor I hope I'm saying his name well I hope and, you're saying it well too <laughs> and uh, Charlie Hunnam who's uh, had a lot of success stateside the last 5 or 10 years People know from Son of, Sons of Anarchy. Kind of scary, uh, tertiary bad guy in yeah. this movie, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, he again. He's he could almost be a background character, but he doesn't disappear. You always keep your eye on that guy. Um, yeah, yeah, it's wall to wall greatness. You I, never I, want the crazy the crazy guy from Die Hard. You killed my brother. I'm gonna come back from the dead yeah. to kill you. Sort of scary dude. Uh, yeah, we're gonna. I'm curious to see where you put Children of Men on your list because it's not fresh to you. It's been percolating for a decade. <laughs> well, uh, we'll find out. This isn't a person-to-person call. This may be an announcement to get our attention. The president's called an emergency meeting. You know those interlaced frames that we thought were noise? This says structure. I'm going to recommend to the president that we militarize this project immediately. There's no reason to believe that their, their intentions are hostile. There's no proof of that. Why don't they just speak English? Mathematics is the only truly universal language, Senator. Buried within the message itself is the key decoding it. Those look like engineering schematics, almost like blueprints. It is our belief that the message contains instructions for building some kind of machine. A machine? It might turn out to be some kind of a transport. Transport? The fact is, you don't know what it does. It could be anything. Nobody's saying this isn't dangerous. They're gonna build it. Who gets to go, though? It's complicated, Ellie. Who gets to go? By doing this, you're willing to risk your life. You're willing to give your life and die for this. Why? So Contact, I think of this list of the movies for me is like the purest form sci-fi and mm. that it's all about big ideas and wonder and kind of sentimentality. Yes. Sentimentality in the way that only Zemeckis and Spielberg seem to be able to pull off without really making my teeth hurt. <laughs> um, not that there isn't a few moments that are, that, that are hit hard in this movie, but it's so hard not to love a movie that's just got its heart on its sleeve like this that that loves the subject matter and that is is trying to be as grand with it as possible it's speculative sci-fi about what first contact might look like mm-hmm. for humanity on a global scale written by one of my favorite minds in science right in, of my lifetime Carl right. Sagan wrote the novel that it's based on who wrote the screenplay the screenplay is adapted by James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg, who I do not know, I but they know did a pretty good job. Those I think. people, I think I, they did. I listened to Contact on audiobook years ago mm. when I was working in the agriculture department. Do you remember who uh, was reading it? I don't. Hmm. I don't. Um, so I'm sort of I'm familiar with both, and I I'm, like Sagan's voice. So it would be yeah. good to hear Sagan himself read it. Um, I'll have to look and see. They didn't add a lot. They mainly had to subtract, mm. which is yeah. largely the case 
when you're dealing with a, a novel like this. We we lock in with Ellie, played by Jodie Foster, yep. and she is a very driven, focused character. She loves astronomy, and she wants to make contact. She wants to listen to the skies and send messages out and listen for anything back. And she misses her daddy, and which she misses is her relevant daddy. to the story. Yeah, and the fact that she's so locked into this, like that she will sacrifice other forms of happiness in order this 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 hardline quest. It's a very driven character that Jodie Foster is really really good at playing. Right. It's a much happier version of Clarice Starling in a lot of ways. She's more uh, hopeful, ambitious version. to a fault, but uh, warmer in her, right. in, in her personality. Uh, very, very likable protagonist. We, we were cheering for Ellie the whole time. Definitely. And there's lots of obstacles. And the movie follows us from the very beginning of her career, uh, babysitting these uh, satellites in the middle of nowhere, Central America, mm -hmm. to her being the person of first contact right. with an alien life form. And we see, we get the idea of, like, the idea of how the religious sects of the world would react, how the scientific community would react, how the government and military would react. Everything's thrown into the bowl, and it's almost too big to fit in a movie, but somehow it does. They manage to shoehorn it all in there, don't they? Yeah. Zemeckis so does it justice. It's, it's not the action spectacle that a lot of the movies we're reviewing are, but it is pure sci-fi, and it's a very, very fine example. Right, and <laughs> even though it's not an action spectacle, there's some big excitement in the movie, yeah. right? The sequence where she gets the the movie's equivalent of the wow signal, yeah. right? The uh, the signal from space that can only be alien intelligence. Yeah. It's uh, what is it? It's repeating the prime numbers from one through one hundred and one. Yeah, they're not sure what it is at first, but it's very much a deliberate focused signal, yes. and she has to confirm it. And with it's her mathematical. Crew. There's no way it's yeah. it's from nature, and it ends up containing plans for building a machine, which we decide to build, yeah. uh, and uh, Ellie ends up through um, all sorts of happenstance being the pilot, the, pilot the astronaut, the temporonaut, whatever you call it, because she seems to travel through time as much as she travels through space when she does ultimately go on her ride. Uh, how do you even... <laughs> That's about as much of a plot outline yeah. as you can give of contact without doing a blow by blow. Because it's a huge spiraling narrative with with lots and lots of characters it's, and yes, lots going exactly. on. But that's the basic. It's a serious study of what it might be like to make first contact and and the effects, the ripple effects everywhere that would would happen. Right. Um, and I, I I like it a lot. I think we talk about a lot of these movies like the ending is tough. I don't. It's not that I have a problem with the ending. I just think that the ending to this movie is tough, right? Mm -hmm. um, I hate to go back to this boring trope because I know we've been there a lot of times before. But it's it's a it's a journey movie for me. I love Ellie's journey of discovery through the movie, and whether or not the rest of the world is convinced, she is satisfied with this. It's an absolute win for her character. Um, but as far as you know what it means to humanity or we kind of finish where we start in a lot of ways right with this movie and it's intended to uh frustrate which is in itself frustrating right i don't have any kind of issue with um with the third act of this movie the way i do with some of the other movies on this list oh no S uh, small by comparison exactly right my we're going to agree i think on the idea that the main 
the weak cog in this machine is Mr. Matthew McCornhole Hay. Yes. As, not so much him. There's nothing wrong with his performance in the movie, uh, but his character, Palmer Joss or yeah. Palmer Ross. Secular religion doesn't seem to have a lot of cards to play in this particular arena. And I don't know that the movie solves it, at least not for me. If memory serves, uh, the novel treats his character a little bit differently than the movie does. The movie seems to be uh, to equivocate a little bit and be a bit more even-handed between Ellie's scientific view of the world and Palmer's uh, uh, religious view of the world. And there's some stuff going on between their two characters that is... I wish we could spend that time doing something else with the movie... But um, I, it makes sense that if we're following Ellie through her whole journey in life, that there would be somebody that she would connect to the most. Yeah. And that turns out to be this Palmer character. But a lot of what goes on between them just seems... It, a lot of it just irritates me. Okay, the exchange about her ch- where she challenges him on the veracity of his claims or whatever about God and the existence of God. And he gives her the... Uh, uh, did you love your father? Which she did very much. The Obviously. movie opens with a sequence of her loving her father and then him dying, etc., etc., when she's a child. And she says, of course I did, and he says, prove it. Prove it. Right? And suddenly Ellie just, paradigm shift. Whoa! She suddenly appreciates that, oh, that's how he believes in God. It's... Yeah, but I don't know that I believe Ellie because she's such a driven character and because she's so focused and committed to the world of science it's a tough sell on us and you get the feeling like if anybody who was a little bit less dreamy than Matthew McConaughey had said and if she was a little less lonely than she was while she was working out at Arecibo (laughs) all by herself he's not a villainous character or anything like that he's just clearly the least interesting thing going on and again I feel like I repeat myself so often I complain about the romance angles in movies being the least interesting thing but with all the shit that's going on in this movie I don't care about the on again off again romance between these two it's the least interesting is there something though at the end of the movie because there's the public ends the movie not believing really that Ellie went on the journey There's there's a split decision among the public we know that Ellie really went on this interstellar and the powers that be know the powers that be know at least some of them yeah and uh, but as far as the public knows this didn't happen and she just sort of has to live with that but the movie seems to say that the reason she's able to swallow that bitter pill uh, even though some might say it's not all that bitter because it just makes her a little less famous right (laughs) is that Palmer believes her. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's my own just sort of natural animosity towards the the suave, dreamy, religious preacher guy uh, character, but it somehow irritates me that the movie seems to tell us that Ellie uh, wouldn't feel nearly as good about her belief that she went on this journey if Palmer didn't believe her. Right. Does that? How do you feel about that? Do you think that sort of weakens her resolve as a character? She's won at this point. So at this point, like it, whether or not the world recognizes it, she, personally, her journey is satisfied. So she can just take comfort with some McConaughey penis if that's you know, <laughs> uh, what she wants. But I don't feel like he he won the argument or really posed a good one. He made her go huh a couple of times, but like and he made her go sploosh a couple of yeah. times. But again, it's it's it is like if it was some you know 
random dude who's just getting up in her face about her beliefs. I don't think she would have given him the time of day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but again, it's a comparatively small part of the movie. Um, but it does it does stick out upon rewatching it as being the least interesting. You know, I'm much more interested in the John Hurt billionaire dude living in space to try and extend his life as long as possible and trying to figure out why he seems to be just. He's chosen Ellie at some point, and he's pulling Ellie along through this journey. That I love Ellie and her crew. Like you say, the William Fichtner plays this guy who's blind, but really does good acoustic work and stuff like this. He's the other person who listens to the actual radio telescope signals instead yeah. of just studying the data. And we get we don't spend a lot of time with the crew, but we like and feel part of them and mm-hmm. like you say that amazing sequence where the the signal first comes in she rushes and she tells her crew uh coordinates and they confirm it and then she starts calling to these other satellite dishes around the world to confirm it because she doesn't want to like be wrong about this right. but she fucking believes it right away she does it's so it's so exciting and then it just explodes from there into a global thing that event turns into this huge what does it mean what are they sending us uh awesome Zemeckis is known as being like a splashy sort of special effects pushing director like he he lost a decade to his career trying to sort of perfect uh, adult oriented animated films like mm. I I like Beowulf for what it is and, and, and Polar Express was an interesting experiment and I didn't see The Christmas Carol but I don't think those movies are going to be remembered or particularly age well anymore. It's interesting because there are amazing flashy shots in the movie, but they kind of are almost invisible at times. There's the showstopper at the beginning where we do the long pan. The huge pullback, right. Into the center of the We universe. go past through all of the radio transmissions right back to the first one. That stands out, but there's little things when Ellie's father dies and she runs up the stairs and it's this long tracking shot which turns out turns to be out a to shot be. in the reflection of the medicine it's cabinet. It's a remarkable piece of trick photography, yeah. <clears throat> and they didn't necessarily need it. It's really splashy and ostentatious but I love it yep. <laughs> every now and then he reminds He's, you it's a Zemeckis movie but he doesn't get overly distracted with it because the real awe in the movie is is the ideas it is uh, I like how understated some of the big spectacle is when the terrorist blows up the first machine and it Jake goes Busey. flying apart Jake Busey <laughs> just does his damage we get a static wide shot of the thing flying apart and it looks very much like what you'd see on the news of, yeah. of an event like this happening rather than than the Michael Bay approach of the camera flying in amongst the chunks of debris as they fly yeah. through the air in slow motion. That's how Ellie ends up getting the seat. Tom Skerritt, who plays a really, really hateable villain in this movie, but a enjoyably hateable, uh, it dies in that explosion, and she's the number two pick. So. Thanks, Jake. <laughs> yeah. That leads us to something we have to talk about. There are two things we have to talk about, yep. because whether they're controversial for you and I or not, they are for a lot of, a people. Lot of people. One is the second machine. Yes. And the other is the... Uh, the actual aliens that she meets turn out to be quite disappointing to a certain segment of people who they take this the movie. form of her dead father to talk to her. Right, and I think the idea is they're trying to make it as comfortable for her as possible because she wakes she's up in what looks like Pensacola, Florida, in her childhood memory. Yeah. They've scanned her brain clearly. She would be understandably terrified because mm-hmm. she has no idea what she's about to face. So, a beach, some sand, a calm ocean, and your father. Right. And I, I understand that makes sense. I also understand people saying, oh, but we wanted to see an alien. You go, that's not an alien. Come on. That, so I, I, I got, I knew what they were going for. And uh, having the benefit of hearing the book, I, I guess 
the built-in anticlimax some people felt that was didn't hurt as much for me. And who were those people? Did they expect her to join Starfleet at the end of the movie? Right. right? Like she she got what she wanted to know. She she spoke to she got the knowledge that there was a broader existence out there beyond this her pale quest was valid and completely, you know. <laughs> right. Sagan's pale blue dot is still only just that, but there are other dots We're out not there alone. and she knows that, right? Something that Sagan himself would have Loved to, to know in his lifetime. He would have loved to see the picture that was released two days ago of, uh, of M87, M- the big black hole, yeah, yeah, that we got our picture of. As far as the second build site, I have less problem with it existing, but more of it just being a big secret. It just seems like that you, making something that size and that scale and that epic uh, covertly is... I don't, I don't know why they just didn't say we, this billionaire is helping us get this thing done, but he's simultaneously making his own. He's building another one. And I guess it's a little unclear whether Haddon hid the second machine in the budget somehow so that the Americans wouldn't know about it. It's more uh, that it's but that a seems to, point. That seems impossible to believe that the military it wouldn't be aware of them building this thing in the Sea of Japan. Right. right? Uh, so I think the government, the represented in the story by James Wood's CD character, he's good in the movie, uh, he's crazy now, <laughs> Uh, so he knows about the second machine. I think it would be silly not to have the second machine once you've built one. Uh, Haddon says, what in the movie? Why buy one when you can have two at twice the cost? <laughs> right. But as I was saying to you the other day, I don't think that second machine costs nearly what the first one does. The R&D, all of the figuring out materials, all of that science that has to be done to build and reverse engineer these plans and build the thing once you know how to do it and train the crews, the second one's a lot easier to build, etc. And comes in handy. Hmm. But I get why some people are like, oh great, so there's a second machine, kind of kills the... After the first one blows up, we find out relatively quickly there's There's a second second one. one. And uh, my, you know, it would have worked better in a television miniseries contact, right? It seems like a needless reveal. Uh, I mean, other people would argue that, of course, Ellie's going to be the pilot, so of course all of this business yeah. with But Tom's there's a scared. lot more book in between those events Absolutely. than there is screenplay, Absolutely. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, and I think that Scarrett's kind of a complicated character. He's scuzzy, and he does... You know, first he doesn't believe her and thinks that her work is pointless, and then he wants to take point on all of her accomplishments. He takes credit for it, but he's never unbelievable to me. <laughs> no, <laughs> like not that at all. fucking dude exists. He's a very believable careerist and opportunist and dickhead. Yeah, and as I, well as being a good scientist, right? Like he's not all bad. He's just a jerk. <laughs> I like also that the ending of the movie is ambiguous for the population of the planet in the movie, but not for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the James Woods character, who's happily covering all of this us, has a bit of dialogue where he said, yeah, we recorded nothing but static for her journey. But uh, as far as we know, she just dropped through the machine and nothing happened. And they recorded, what, three hours or something like that worth of static? Yeah. In that, that Or so he says. Yeah. There's no reason for us to take his word for it. We, He very well may have heard uh, or seen a lot of what happened, right? Right. Um, at least her being slammed around and warping through space-time as she's sliding through these Which was really cool. is very well done, uh, effects-wise. And either way, whether it's this, just the deleted Nixon tape static that he mentions or whether he really has seen something, he knows that she really went on a little David Bowie journey. Yeah. Bowie's and in space. She's good in the whole movie. 
but that scene when they're about to t- to like drop the the pod through the machine, <laughs> right? And she is fucking terrible. This is everything her life has been working up to. This is everything she's ever wanted. This is her entire goal, and she is fucking terrified. Yep, absolutely incredible. <laughs> but like, she doesn't want anyone else to be there. But this very well be the last moment of my life, <laughs> and uh, and great. she's okay with that. Yeah, no, worth it. Worth and it, it works out pretty well. The movie. Uh, has this won't spoil my list necessarily but I think the movie has its act together in act three more, more so than most than just about anything else on this list uh, the it begins middles and ends quite well uh, my only real gripe is that Palmer character I don't know if it just feels like it distracts too much screen time and I'd rather have other material being handled in there. Uh, I think the, the book and the movie is trying to give a voice to a large segment of the population who usually doesn't get a voice in these movies. My argument is the reason they don't get a voice in this movie is that, like, if you're basing all of your beliefs off of your particular doctrine, this doesn't exist within your doctrine. Mm-hmm. This is, this is like, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> this is a zookeeper doing math. It's just not his job. But the there's a difference between objectivity and neutrality and I feel like the movie is too neutral in that it just sort of gives equal treatment to Ellie's faith in her air quotes faith in science and Palmer's faith in God and when challenged on it uh, Palmer's reaction is more or less to say yeah but feelings but just cause yeah feelings I I have big feelings about it and Ellie's like well, okay, I can deal with that. I can live with that. Well, and I got I got these figures from outer space to make an interdimensional transportation system. So mm-hmm. I'm not sweating it either. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I like Rushmore too. <laughs> Rushmore's a good other conversation. Rushmore's another, another conversation. Day. Contact. Uh, one of my favorite sci-fi movies of the 90s. And in an impressive roster of films. Zemeckis gave us Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the you know Back to the Future series. A lot of people like Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, For whatever reason. <laughs> um, uh, so, like, he's a big guy, makes big films, and this is one of his very best. I concur. Everything that has a beginning... Has an end. I see the end coming. I see the darkness spreading. I see death. <laughs> Mr. Anderson, welcome back. We missed you. It ends tonight. And you are all that stands in his way. If you cannot stop him tonight, then I fear that tomorrow may never come. Neo and Bane lie unconscious in the medical bay of the ship Hammer. Meanwhile, Neo finds his digital self trapped in a virtual subway station named Mobile Avenue, Mobile being an anagram for Limbo. The station functions as a transition zone between the Matrix and the Machine City. 
In that subway station, he meets a family of programs, including a girl named Sati, whose father tells Neo the subway is controlled by the train man, an exiled program loyal to the Merovingian. When Neo tries to board the train with the family, the train man refuses and overpowers him, Larry. Are you remembering this movie yet? <laughs> Seraph contacts Morpheus and Trinity on behalf of the Oracle, who informs them of Neo's confinement. Uh, they go to Club Hell. I sort of remember that. Uh, everything that has a beginning has an end. That's, you know, deep. Um, there's some precognition that goes on. The Nebuchadnezzar and the Hammer fly around and find Niobe's ship, the Logos. There's a lot of meaning in these mm-hmm. names, Larry. Uh, Zion, I, I think that's important somewhere in, in the r- religious history of our planet. Isn't there something like... Bane. Bane. Oh, yes. Bane, you were saying, is the bigoted Agent Smith incarnate. Agent Smith. Isn't there something particularly like distasteful about a movie that really thinks it's smart, but is spectacularly stupid? <laughs> I don't think this movie is spectacularly stupid, Larry. I think it's spectacularly mediocre. I think that the Wachowski Sibs didn't want to make Matrix 2 and 3. No, but I think they had somebody to. backed a dump truck full of money. <laughs> beep, beep, yep. beep. And suddenly this had to be a trilogy. <laughs> it's sad to me, because as we talked about the first time we spoke Matrix on this podcast, The Matrix is a great movie. It the really first is, Matrix, and it holds up pretty well. Every other day, every other time I think about that podcast, I feel like I was wrong and Moon should be number one on the list just where you put it yeah. and then we'd have matched <laughs> and then on other days I think no I was right Matrix is I'd rather watch Matrix today than Moon <laughs> I don't want my heart broken today <laughs> yeah uh, and so I stand by my review I think we gave some good podcast on that podcast but this movie is a hot mess of you, do you remember the jackass I don't remember if it was in a movie or one of the episodes but where that the huge idiot Dave England okay. eats all of the vegetables and an egg and then vomits them the into a frying pan and makes a vomit omelet yeah this is the movie version of the vomit omelet um, here's the thing Jeremy Cook and I reviewed on one of our terrible twos episode The Matrix Reloaded and like the fact that it was included on this <laughs> that list obviously we fucking hated it but it had classic middle child syndrome Mm-hmm. This movie at least had the benefit of this. This is the last Matrix movie. It's we can supposed to close the book. Off and we can seal the deal. We can tell you what this has all been leading up to, what it meant, what Neo really is. And the essential failure <laughs> it goes across the boards. It's not a satisfying ending. It doesn't particularly make sense. We don't understand everything. I still don't understand why Neo has power. Not really. In the real world. What the movie does really well, though, is carry on the legacy of the second movie <laughs> of subtracting away from, from the, the characters yeah. and quality of the first movie. The old, It says a lot that the most entertainment that you and I took from rescreening this movie <laughs> was the Bane character and the fact that Neo is blinded. Now, Bane is infected by Agent Smith. The yes. one, the great, maybe the only thing I like about Matrix 2 and 3 is more Hugo Weaving. Yeah. He's just delicious as Agent Smith. Hugo. A lot more Hugo Weaving. <laughs> he infests this Bane fellow who's just so... He does a really great impression of Hugo Weaving. But he's, but he's so clearly... So clearly Agent, Agent Smith. Smith. And Neo is so dim-wittedly <laughs> unaware of this and keeps saying things to Bane that are basically just uh, Ted Theodore Logan. Like, yeah. 
whoa, <laughs> who blinded me, man? Yeah, that was the running gag as we were watching it. He just kept that. And once we do this, we have to figure out who the fuck that guy was that blinded me. <laughs> like, we actively... It's the most pleasure I've taken from The Matrix since watching it with you and Lee Beckman in 1999 in the theater. Thoroughly loved the first movie, and the next best thing was laughing about <laughs> who this blinded movie, Neo because he spends half of the movie blind. It's laughable. It is laughable. Like the big swarm of machines that form the baby face that delivers a lot of exposition at the end yeah. is literally called Ex Machina. Uh, <laughs> like uh, the super duper. Kaduper Agent Smith fight, which is just a bigger version of the Agent Smith fight from the second movie, yep. does nothing to raise. Like, I don't feel this anything escalating no. at all. Like, I don't feel like, oh, now that there's thousands of them, Neo's in real trouble. Like, I don't think you could make a better example of how not to make a sequel to a big budget successful movie that's like money success, critical success. Everybody loves The Matrix. Who doesn't like The Matrix unless you're a huge bummer right <laughs> the first matrix movie is at least fun and you have to acknowledge that it's at least somewhat thoughtful by action movies uh, action sci-fi standards sure. the movie thinks but <clears throat> do matrix two and three think or are they just desperately trying to cling on to a world for that big dump truck of money we've talked before we maybe mentioned it in our first Matrix review, that the Animatrix, the series of short animated things, at least four of the six, or however many there were, are significantly better than anything in either of the Matrix More interesting, and uh, yeah, better told, frankly. I want to, like, here's the, where I'll take it. Absolve your sons, because sins of the father, I don't play that stuff, but a pox on you for making me watch the Matrix again. Or the Matrix sequence. I have again. to watch this thing twice for this podcast, dude. Yeah, <laughs> so. well, I, I needed a, a suffering mate. I needed someone <laughs> to suffer with me through Matrix Revolutions, which I don't think we ever named the movie. I just started reading oh. the Wikipedia synopsis. Yes. That's what we are the talking The third and about. final of the Matrix trilogy, Matrix Revolutions. Um, I don't care about any of the characters, and by that I mean none of the programs. Like, I, I, right. I don't care about any of them. And any of the characters in the real world. The real world characters are miserable. Like, plug my ass into the Matrix. <laughs> right. Get me there. I'm with uh, with Joey Pants. Plug yeah. me back in. Make me someone famous. We don't we don't get to know en- enough of those characters to really care about it. We don't necessarily believe the states. It's a big Pixar computer fight at the end. It's less charming than any Pixar movie right? I've seen by a long shot. I don't understand. And here we are picking on a movie that a lot of people worked hard on. It's not easy to make a movie. Trying to make a bad movie. Everybody apparently wanted Matrix 2 and 3. It's our own fault. Yeah. Uh, But the movie... I lost my point later. You (laughs) take it. The cat distracted me. And the late hour. The, the, the fact that this is supposed to close the deal, though. I mean, I get, I understand, that's all true. They never meant to make a trilogy, but they took the dump truck of money, and they're going to make this mm. trilogy. I remember what I was going to say. It's that, uh, and we've made the criticism already, maybe in this very podcast, but the ending of the movie doesn't make sense. I don't understand why Neo has to be Jesus in the real world. It was really entertaining and interesting for him to be Jesus in the Matrix, and yeah. instead he's... he's uh, how and why does he have powers in the corporeal world 
and it says everything you need to know about Matrix Revolutions that I don't give a shit. The Oracle like, I says... I don't care enough for us to really worry about it too much, and that says... The Oracle it. says that the One's power extends beyond the Matrix. Oh, but, that's why. But that's not an explanation. No. That, that just It's because a wizard did it, right? Like, a wizard did it. A like, different wizard because the actress who played the original Oracle had died, died. Yeah. and it's distracting well, that it's a new Oracle. Not That's not the movie's fault, though. They nope. did... They, they, Absolutely. Yeah, they had to course correct, what can you do? <laughs> no... I know across the board the Wachowski's big master plan as far as I can see it for the, 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 the movie once it became a trilogy is in the first movie okay Neo's gonna die but he's not and in the second movie Trinity's gonna die but she's not and in the third movie they're both gonna really die <laughs> <laughs> all the rest of the spiraling narrative around it all of the historical references and philosoph philosophical references clumsy as they are and pointless mm -hmm. they're, 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 they're saying these things they're, they're nudging these big ideas but they're not saying anything about them they're saying we're aware that this exists the movies particularly 2 and 3 1 doesn't try to world build beyond what it has to and it works to the movie's credit right our imagination gets to fill in a lot of the blanks uh, Neo is just learning about the world beyond what you and I would just see as the everyday 90s right right but once we come out of the Matrix, especially in the second and third movies, the world just feels like this inauthentic series of tubes that they all fly <laughs> around in these hovercrafts, and then there's a rave for some reason oh, at Zion. In the second in movie, the second that rave movie, is just brutal. It is <laughs> just brutal. <laughs> so ridiculous, but it's a good example of how to not make uh, a Buredu Runneru. Yeah. Blade Runner, yeah, Matrix 2 and 3 are the opposite of Blade Runner. I don't feel the authenticity of the world at all anymore by the time we get into the third movie. The people I don't just seem beleaguered. want it to be over. They don't seem beleaguered or put upon or desperate. They, in right. fact, seem kind of the opposite of that. They're not, this is a pointless fight. They're all gung-ho, we're going to fight to the last man. And they're not like, oh, we have to eat bugs and live underground. They, they, they're like... I'm a true human. I'm not living in an illusion. Yep. I just live in this world that fucking sucks. <laughs> this horrible garbage waste. And I do it with a big shit-eating grin on my face. <laughs> yeah. The, we knew from the moment Neo hangs up the phone at the end of the first movie... He's the one. ...that he's going to kill the machines. That's what, that's what I walked out of the theater believing... Neo's going to go beat whatever supercomputer in my head. I had the sort of laughable uh, image of the sort of floating supercomputer-looking thing from Tron. Right. <laughs> right. And Neo uh, somehow defeats the machines. And that was a satisfying way for the story to we go. We don't need to see it happen. It just got more boring as we waited it for it to ultimately end in a less satisfying fashion than the first movie did. It's a tired trope. It's been said before, even by me, but it's... Way more interesting watching Neo become the one than watching Neo be the one. <laughs> right. Take any movie on this list other than than this one and watch it three, three times, times before you watch this movie once. Seriously. I'm good with that. Like, I'm done. Do you have anything else that you want to say? Click. It's been it's been quick and dirty, <laughs> but I mean, all I would be doing is kicking a corpse. The Wachowski sisters like it quick and dirty. <laughs> Our sun is dying. Mankind faces extinction. 16 months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun before it's too late.
Welcome to Icarus 2. recently talked about on the podcast a really strange and obscure Danny Boyle movie called Vacuuming Completely Naked in Paradise. Mm. <laughs> very, very strange, aggressive movie. I think uh, we described it as like the BBC decided to do their own version of Glengarry Glen Ross, but they wanted to make it vulgar and dark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Danny Boyle can do anything. I, I, I firmly believe that. And, and he's one of the more secure bets is like you're going to a movie theater and paying money for your ticket if if he if he's directing it i would confidently say that it's worth the price of admission and i would definitely say that about sunshine uh, but as i have talked about with a lot of these movies that we're addressing today and certainly not to the extreme of the late lamented matrix revolutions Ugh. uh there are some problems with this movie yes. but much like the abyss in spite of the large problems with the movie I really fucking like this movie. <laughs> well, we're we're gonna have some interesting things to talk about on Sunshine because I really I do like some of Sunshine, but I would not put it anywhere near the category of liking Sunshine the way I like The Abyss. Right. And you seem to be equating the two a little bit. I, I'm equating them in the sense that they both have problematic third acts, uh, but yes. I love the rest of the movie enough that I'm willing to look past it. And I don't love the rest of Sunshine enough to be able to look past all of it because I feel like, unlike The Abyss, Sunshine has just some on-its-face plot problems that, and concept problems that I struggle with getting past, and maybe that's my failure as a viewer to want questions answered like, okay, but we, we have a pretty firm understanding of how much longer the sun will burn why is the sun dying? Yeah. Because that's, let's well, go that's through the, the plot. plot. Uh, the sun, the is, sun dying. is dying. <laughs> this mission is being sent. It's actually the second mission that's being sent to detonate some sort of payload on the surface or inside the sun to, to try and re-kickstart re it somehow and brighten the sun. We get a glimpse of Earth at the end of the movie. We see the Sydney Opera House Under snow. frozen in. Australia seems to be the warmest place on Earth, and it's frozen, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, so the very short version is they fly out there and run into the the they find the first mission sitting there seemingly abandoned uh, some shit goes wrong it's rather exciting uh, and as they arrive at the sun to perform their mission stuff starts going wrong on their ship and it turns out that the captain of the original ship Icarus I think yes. they're called Icarus 1 and 2 the captain of the first Icarus has gone space Space mad. madness. And, and that's the point where the movie kind of derails. Right, he's either murdered his crew or they died and he's since gone crazy. It's sort of unclear exactly what happened, but um, now he's trying to kill all of our characters because he doesn't want the sun to be restarted because he believes God has told him to make sure that everyone on Earth dies. Interestingly enough, too, that character's played by Mark Strong. Yeah. And you'd never know, because you never get a look at him, like, really. He's, he's, he's the 
uh, is the Scottish guy in the Kingsman movies. Yes, is right. It, yeah, Merlin, like, is it Merlin? Merlin was his call sign. Yeah. yeah. In the uh, his performance is good. I was the effect or like the the problem the for me makeup well, on his suit bed. Why did Danny Boyle do you think choose to blur him so much? It's a hard thing to answer. Like, uh, do you agree that that it's done to a distracting degree? The blurring of his character? Alex Garland, the screenwriter, had real problems with the ending. And there was a little bit of an Apocalypse Now thing going on in that they weren't sure how they were going to end the movie. Mm. And I always think it's a bad idea to be building the track while the train is running. Right. And that, It works great in Looney Tunes, but <laughs> yeah. not elsewhere. Uh, and like, if it wasn't Danny Boyle, I think it might have been an out-and-out catastrophe. Um so that we, we get to know this crew as they're heading for the sun, the sun, and I think the reason that the crazy, like, superhero slasher guy that we meet when we finally get to our destination is because it's so unreal. And everything about the movie, is far, it is fantastic and big and large-scale sci-fi, but they do a good job of making it feel real to me. Mm. I believe the crew, I believe, you know, the stakes, and when shit goes bad and uh, the they ended up burning off a good piece of their ship because of a mathematical error made by one of them yeah. suddenly you know it becomes about we're not going to have enough air and sacrifices are going to have to be made and there's like this little mini box Twilight Zone episode where one of the characters ends up taking his own life as an, as an effort mm -hmm. to try and spare the rest of the crew because the world is at stake all of that stuff was working incredibly well and existed in the real world once we get there, we seem to abandon the real world. Even if he'd just been there in Space Mad and we just saw him as a mad person and somehow, I don't know, who knows how he's pulling all of this shit off, that'd be fine. But he seems to be this rippling, glowing, like, mirage image. Is he, like, he's burning so hot from staring at the sun that he's turned into fire himself. Mm -hmm. And it's not explained or attempted to be explained. I feel like he's just supposed to be horribly burned and for stylistic reasons, maybe because the makeup sucked or something, they smudged him. It, they, he, his image seems perpetually smudged. It That effect works for me when Kappa, is that his name? The, is, yeah, the, the protagonist. Murphy? Right. When he first comes into the obser observation lounge, the room where they can open the window and look at the sun, uh, and the things on crazy bright and the dudes in there and he can hardly see him that works he's right. there in the the sunroom he's blinded by the light he can hardly see but then just wherever they run into him throughout the ship as he runs around uh sabotaging everything and ruining the mission for them and uh his sabotage causes a situation where kappa our protagonist has no chance to leave orbit and he has to manually detonate the payload in order to restart the sun which he does in a rather Doctor Strange Lovian sequence where he <laughs> rides the bomb screaming into the sun to reignite it um, <clears throat> I found, found myself this viewing at least not feeling like it, it was real enough until we got there I, if I hadn't rewatched the movie I would have probably just nodded along with what you said and yes that Mm -hmm. said yes that's my memory of sunshine this time I found myself thinking things like okay they're running out of air the tanks just got vented right they've been they had an oxygen garden uh, and the crazy captain lights it on fire and blows the whole thing up and kills the gardener ultimately right when, once the movie turns into a horror show but uh, they have to vent all the air tanks Captain America vents the air tanks in order to put out the fire yeah 
that payload room that the payload is in is humongous, right? It's big enough to contain this huge object that's dense and large enough to have its own gravity well that they can stand on it, right? I don't know how it's like it's not explained. The movie doesn't try to, and it shouldn't because you. It's how, impossible. how how do you explain it cleanly? Right? Yeah, but how do you that? Cap is just walking around. They're all just breathing. That whole place is full of air. Yeah. There's no way four people breathe that in 20, 12 hours. I think they're supposed to be running out of air. So I was running into little things like that, although you don't... No, you do go into the payload room with Kappa once or twice before the movie turns in, into that third act uh, creature feature, almost. Where the movie succeeds is the characters are rich and well-developed and efficiently developed even the um i can't remember crew names very easily but i think of them as extra sad ellen page right yeah uh, rose Byrne. right who just uh, i she's quite beautiful i wonder she must be amazingly beautiful if she ever smiles she does a great <laughs> job of playing the most unhappy looking cosmonaut in history uh Everyone turns out a good performance. The captain is fine. Um, I love the sequence with the captain on the dish. The the that sequence is good. Yeah, I would be curious to see what the effects would have looked like at their original scale. But that's that's not even something that I feel takes away from the movie. I had a couple of notes, and I don't want to make too much uh, rustling. But because I've gotten into the criticism of plot foibles leading into that third act, I uh, wanted to take a look back. Um, I'm unclear the big one is that I'm unclear why they're there maybe it's best for the movie like I mean the human beings are on the ship right the, the movie doesn't take the step of of coming up with a pretense for why you need human beings on the mission it would seem to me that if the mission is go drop this bomb in the sun then instead of designing an expensive mission to keep eight people alive while they fly to the sun, drop the bomb, and then speed away to break orbit and try and get back to Earth, which is really difficult to do orbital mechanics-wise, why wouldn't you just send an autopiloted mission to send the bomb well, to the sun? That's one of those things that I just had to choose to. Like, right, and that's, and that's what you have to do, and that's what I did the first two times I watched the movie, and this time I found myself going... Why? Like, what are we watching then if there's no human characters, right? I'm, I'm not saying that... Yeah, it's a choice of don't make the movie or do that. <laughs> or write a story that explains why people have to be there to do it. Right. And it, you can do that, right? I know it was a whole TV show, but the reimagining of Battlestar Galactica, they took, yeah. they took the time to explain why the Galactica operated like a World War II aircraft carrier and didn't have artificial intelligences running I think everything. they're asking us to take a lot fewer leaps and less ridiculous leaps than, like, obviously the Matrix or, you know, like... A, Yes and no. I don't buy into it, but it's a not unpopular theory in uh, in philosophy and in physics, the notion that if it's possible to simulate a universe within a universe, then if it's possible to simulate more than one, which is imaginable, right, if we can build a simulation that can simulate a universe, uh, then it's mathematically much more likely that we're living in a simulation than in a physical universe. I I can't I'm <laughs> I educated enough on the subject to, to uh well you've thought deeper about that. it than anybody involved with the matrix did is my point. <laughs> yeah, but I'm what I'm saying is that for me personally the idea of us living in 
thrall to a bunch of uh, technological overlords without even realizing it and being in this sort of Truman Show-esque environment is easier to swallow than there's a mission to restart the sun because it's burning out. Right, that kind of feels like right. uh-huh. it's almost to the level of there's a mission to go to the moon and collect cheese. Especially if you're drilling for oil, why build that drill thing right next to a gigantic abyss? True. Right? Like It's you, not right on, next on to it. Certain, they do have to move it, but it's pretty close. On a certain level, you know, it, I, 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 I've talked about it before in the podcast too, but I heard a guy reviewing the original Pet Cemetery, and he was all like, why would you live next to a haunted cemetery? And he's just like, well, if you're going to fight the premise on that <laughs> level, <enough>. like, <laughs> we but, need a crew of people, they need to reignite the sun, we're going to get to know these characters and watch what happens to them. Yeah. And I think the movie does a good job of explaining, like, for me, when we, when we knew the movie, I knew the basic premise the first time I watched it, that they see the other ship, mm-hmm. and they go to investigate what happened, and I was like, bullshit. If the world's at stake, you live with the mystery, and you complete the mission. Yeah. But because of the fuck-up with the grid... Uh, when they go to take a look at it, uh, they burn off a good portion of their ship accidentally right. from the sun. So they have to go there to make get stuff to make repairs. Like, well, the decision—it might be scientific gobbledygook. The decision made that it's better to have two warheads than, than one, one. Yeah, right? and that's why they initially divert. Uh, Structure-wise, once you accept that core idea of the sun is burning out, and I'm like, I was. I did not ever approach this movie with my arms crossed. Right. I, I bought it on DVD and, and on Blu-ray. Blu-ray. <laughs> it's I, amazingly I to, like uh, well-made and exciting while you're watching yeah, it. Yeah, and it's cool to watch a space movie that's bright. It's yeah. the brightest space movie since Disney's Black Hole, yeah. let's say. I think it's brighter than that one even <laughs> because they're flying straight at the sun the whole time. Um, I just don't think it would be impossible, nor would it be... Uh, a waste of the movie's time to explain to us why people have to be there because there are conceivable reasons why people would need to be there and instead of just asking the audience to do the work on that there are a lot of things the audience can do the work on the movie doesn't make any mention of what year it is it just gives us subtle little hints that it's probably a fair ways in the future with all of their crazy fancy vibrating surgical tools Gadgets. and whatnot, right uh, but there's no uh, to my memory there's no title card telling us what year it is we just know it's obviously far enough in the future that we can build a device to restart the sun but close enough to now that the sydney opera house still stands despite this global catastrophe that's happening i don't need a whole lot of world building on that stuff like look at the look at moon that movie has minimal world building going on we see little glimpses of it here and there and it works to the movie's credit because the character is supposed to be isolated these characters are supposed to be isolated it should work it does work to a certain extent, but mining uh, helium three is it that they're mining on the moon in moon? Sorry to digress there, but like that's just that's much more believable yeah. than flying a mission to restart the sun. Yeah. Uh, but I agree with you. You just have to yeah. accept that and, and it's go not, with it. That stuff doesn't bother me as much. It's things like wasted characters. The Michelle Yeoh character you mentioned, the botanist, is an exec- excellent example of that. She's mm-hmm. an amazing actress. She's really physically strong, and she can like do all sorts of cool stuff. And she mm-hmm. loves the plants, and once the plants are destroyed, she has no purpose. And Alex Garland can't think of what to do with her, so she's killed off. Right, and it, it 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 just it just seemed like a waste of like a, a character and an actor like 
that moment was surprising. We didn't expect her to die just then, but it would have been impactful right. if you know we understood more where this was coming from. I must not have expected her to die just then the first time. I certainly did this time because yeah, it was like it was. my third screening of the movie. But there are other things there that even within the world of the movie are kind of broken. Icarus is what the name of the ship is, but it's also what they refer to like they when they talk to the ship. Mm-hmm. Icarus is smart enough to do things like refuse to let them change the course of the ship because it's going to jeopardize the mission, etc., etc. But however, she she neglects to mention to them. Well, no, 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 they had to turn off Icarus and override her and able to to do that maneuver in the first place, and then he forgot to manually readjust the mirrors when he moved the ship. And that burned the ship. And that burned the antenna, and it damaged the mirrors, and then they had to go out there and try and fix them. People die. (laughs) Right. Um, shoot where was I oh inside the um, yes Icarus doesn't bother mentioning to them oh hey there's a fourth breather a fifth breather on the ship the captain of the other vessel who blew the airlock and snuck on board and is killing people Icarus knows there's a new person on the ship it seems ridiculous to me and like that's the sort of vague thing that's where it becomes the weird supernatural thing like what is this guy Mm-hmm. And the movie doesn't even attempt to answer it. But He's just very, a killer. There's this very Star Trek original series moment there. There's an episode in the original series where there's an intruder on the Enterprise. And there's this tense scene where the Enterprise computer is isolating all the 271 heartbeats of right. every crew member. And they block out every uh, crew member's heartbeat. And there's still one. And the ship tells them it's in the engineering section. And it's very dramatic. And it's sort of silly. And that's fine. It's 60s Star Trek. But that moment this time felt to me like, why didn't Icarus mention this in the first place when it's already been smart enough to do things like, no, sorry, you're going to destroy the ship. I'm taking over. I'm smart enough to override the people who are here on this mission. And this brings me back to the whole, why are there people on this mission? Uh, thing in the <clears throat> in the first place, um, and there was one other, yeah. Especially considering she even knew where he was. Now maybe we're supposed to put two and two and six and six together and figure out that the captain somehow uh, overrode Icarus's programming to keep her from telling them about until she's just we listening. Don't have that scene, right? That scene comes out of nowhere and you go okay well I get what they're going for with the dramatic effect of like hey there's a call coming from inside the house yeah. right? here's the reveal there's someone trapped on the ship but that would have been useful information 30 minutes earlier in the movie Icarus and that's a problem that doesn't come from like hey you have to accept that this is what's happening in the movie they're flying to the sun that's sloppy writing I agree but it's also incredibly exciting Mm. while you're watching it yep. like uh, the the whole sequence and they've done it before in other science fiction movies where they have to go from one airlock to another yep. really well fucking handled it is handled pretty well um, the like um, sequence where the, the ship gravity gets all fucked up as they're getting closer to the sun and the entire environment seem to be shifting while the fight's happening mm-hmm. really exciting and really well done the scene where Captain America is going under this cooling fluid to, to fix the In the, the most problem. ridiculously designed computer ever. <laughs> oh no, the design of, like the big fluid tanks that, yeah. Yeah, but he's again, very brave. if you accept the environment, which I do obviously more than you did, yeah. that was a really, really cool sequence. Mm-hmm. And that dude had been a hard ass the whole movie, but he'd been way more right than wrong 
the whole movie most of the too. time. Yes, yeah? and his death is fucking heroic, and you like you feel it with him, and it's it like is. well done. I also felt this time though, like I'm my first two viewings of the movie would have agreed with you much more on that as well and this time I found myself shaking my head a little bit at the design of the computer but again uh, the sequence is is, uh, exciting where he's dunked in these freezing tanks but the moment he realizes that Icarus is out of the coolant uh, before even sending the radio message to anyone he dives into the first tank and starts to repair it and then starts to climb out, and you're like, oh man, he fixed the tank. Then, while freezing and chattering, gives the radio message before going to fix the other tanks. And it was just a little thing that made me go, like, critical thinking time here. Like, grab the radio, say what's going on. If then, you, then jump in the freezing fluid and fix the tanks. Maybe he didn't, you know, like that was the snap decision that he just made. And again, the but stakes again, could that not felt be higher. like something that could have been ironed out with a couple of script revisions. Like it didn't, the ending was not thought out. I feel, well, and as much as, again, I like I opened saying I didn't like the way the movie ended, but I still feel like I'm paying much more defense for the movie. The fact that it became much more of a problem for you on the third viewing, too, tells me that the movie had enough momentum and excitement to it that you got wrapped up on it. It's true. And now you have to put it up against Blade Runner and the Abyss. And the, these things, but like, again, it's I, true. I, I try not to fight the premise unless they are, uh, unless they break the rules of their own world. I guess I, mm-hmm. I just try to accept it whenever possible. <laughs> well, I, I went into the movie with a defensive feeling about like wanting to really like Sunshine right. because I recommended it to a friend who didn't really like the movie gave oh, yeah. a, a pretty critical review and I went into the movie going like no I like Sunshine <laughs> and I showed it to Brianna we watched it together and we did like it but I did find myself noticing those things and I don't even know that they were specific criticisms of, of his it, it was years ago that I recommended he watch Sunshine I don't know you know it's a if it was a mood thing if I was just uh, too wrapped up in the sigh rather than the phi than I ought to have been um, but the movie made strange choices in my opinion as far as going hard sci-fi from certain angles and then from certain other angles and sci-fi movies have to do this let's just do let's not explain the fact that we have the technology for magic gravity we can we can stick to floors. I know, and I'm a Star Trek fan, yeah. right? So, but I also recognize when I watch Star Trek that that's ridiculous, <laughs> and it's part of why I can't get as into the new Star Trek shows because I'm a more jaded viewer of these things yeah. now. And it made more sense in even even in 2001, which this movie feels like an homage to in some ways. It's a sort of dark, gritty horror movie, Danny Boyle, 2001. They're flying to hell instead of away from it, right? right? They're flying to the center of the solar system in this ship. Um, I lost my train of thought. You take it for a sec. You're looking at me (laughs) expectantly. I feel like it's an incredibly entertaining movie. Mm -hmm. Like, I I sort of start and stop with that. Like, um, you can fight the premise of any movie, really. <laughs> 2001 ex- took the time to explain the gravity on the ship. Right. was what I was going to say, right? Like, even though that was the 60s, let's yeah. have a spinning section in the ship so we understand why they're walking around. It's not too, too much to ask from a movie that's sort of hard-ish sci-fi. Hmm. Like, again, I just like they established them, they're on a ship, and there's gravity on it. I accept it. Yep. <laughs> you know? And, Fair enough. And, and uh, the, this is like buy the ticket, take the ride. And I think it's absolutely worth 
watching Sunshine. And it is a purely entertaining movie. Again, the ending is flawed, but to me it feels like the first two-thirds of this movie could be like a truly fan-fucking-tastic science fiction movie. And then it turns into an entertaining horror movie. But because I was so excited and so much anticipating this this sci-fi payoff, I'm disappointed by the horror payoff. But do I think it's bad? Not at all. Mm. Would I recommend people watch it? Yes, I would. I think, like again, the worst Danny Boyle movie like is is worth watching. Yeah, it's not a bad <laughs> movie, but uh, I <clears throat> wouldn't recommend it to somebody ahead of. There are a lot of other movies I would recommend first. I can say it's certainly not. If the somebody best said, Danny "Hey, should Boyle I have, should I check out?" Uh, sunshine it's sunshine right yeah. not sunlight uh, I would say yes but it's not a satisfying horror movie and it's not a satisfying sci-fi movie it's the beginning of a satisfying sci-fi movie and the ending of a satisfying horror movie <laughs> and, and they, they crisscross in an uncomfortable way and that way. I agree with yeah yeah I we uh, this is going to come in different places on our list I think, that, <laughs> I think, I think that's is. obvious I think that is. this is going to be in a different spot we were talking before the uh, the recording that uh, I was feeling like the top four are really difficult to decide, and you were feeling like the, the top, top five were difficult yeah. to decide. So it's how I feel. <laughs> no spoilers, but hints right there. There's some foreshadowing. Um, but, sort of a split decision, I guess, on on Sunshine, but uh, it's a worthy entry on the list. I, I don't want to be misinterpreted and sound like I'm saying that Sunshine is a poorly made film yeah. or that you shouldn't watch Sunshine. I just you know, obviously, I'm the critical voice on this movie in this particular case, and I second almost everything of what Larry said. <laughs> Just because you're making me feel guilty for, for being so critical, uh, the whole thing with Trey and his, his air quote suicide, right? It was actually Evil Captain, and the find a kindness scene where they all have to they do the unanimous vote on whether or not to kill him, so they have enough air. All of those things uh, is brutally well handled and well acted by everybody there you go Larry I said something (laughs) no I really did there's something about that find a kindness that she says to him after he he says that she won't do it without her vote and she says you can't have my vote and he does he's gonna go kill this man anyway (laughs) just so they can breathe his air because they think that maybe he might have decoupled the airlock but we know it wasn't him but again, those isolated like box scenes are so good. Right? They are, and but in a, in the headspace of like, wait a second, the sci in this movie is not up to snuff. Those isolated moments of excellence can actually ring sort of hollow or ring just off key to the point where you're like, Whoa, why couldn't you have put these excellent characters in this well told well told two thirds of a story yeah. into. Uh, into a setting that didn't distract me with its uh, sci-fi impossibilities. I I will grant that if you're going to have a movie about restarting the sun, you got to accept that that's something that's going to happen. That's the premise. And I'm able to, I'm able to do that for sure. I do think that the scene. Uh, this is not a criticism, but you were talking about at the end as they're tumbling into the sun, uh, gravity's shifting and changing, etc. Reality seems to be morphing. Yeah. I think that um, the mass of the of the payload they're dropping into the sun is so dense and heavy that it has its own gravity and they're sticking to it. But, uh, last thing, the captain, you were saying you're not sure what's supposed to have happened to him, how he's all crispy, why is he all blurry, we were talking about Bacon that. Bacon man. That very last shot of the last time we see Kappa 
Uh, time seems to freeze just as he approaches the very surface of the sun. They've flown through the corona and down into it. And that last moment of his life, he seems to be stuck in it, at least from our perspective, right? Um, time freezes and he's just there and able to reach out and touch the surface of the sun. Uh, and what do you think is going on there? Are we just witnessing that last sort of life flashing before his eyes? There's certainly some communion with God overtones. We see his hand start to cook a little bit the way uh, the way the evil captain was He's touching was the cooked. infinite, but he's much more directly because the captain was much farther away. Mm-hmm. It's ambitious, if not completely successful. It's, and, yeah, it's ambiguous is what it is <laughs> in a not satisfying way to me. Not that I don't mean that scene in particular. I actually thought it was a really spectacular visual and I, I liked the way they handled the collision with the sun considering how the fuck do you handle that? But <laughs> yes, there you go, Larry. Thank There's you. sunshine. I say it all the time. I keep repeating myself this podcast, but this was a tough, tough fucking list. <laughs> like tricky. Uh, we're talking sci-fi. We're talking strong directors. Maybe this is the last time the Wachowskis will appear in a director masterclass. Maybe they have to earn that title back for me. But uh, I don't think they will. <laughs> uh, we were talking. It I doesn't feel like we're going to match on this list, but uh, I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. But uh, I thought maybe you would reclaim your throne. Uh, Beckman Nine. still has it. He's still covetous of it. Like, he, he really doesn't like the idea of anyone stealing it from him. <laughs> he guards it jealously. <laughs> he lost it to Brock. I don't think I'll get it back from you this time, no. Lee. No. He lost it to Brock, and then Brock lost it to uh, Eric and Ashley in the Rocky oh, it's episode. Been all over the place. And then two episodes after that, Lee won it back in the Shark episode. It was been passed around like a hot potato for a little while, but huh. he's been enjoying a bit of a rain, so... Uh, he smugly listens with anticipation. <laughs> Congratulations, King Lee. I could try and do the list to try and uh, match yours. Right. I might stand a chance this at is guessing your list. your list, but I'm not doing that. I'm just listing my list. No, fair enough. Uh, in sixth and final place, the obvious answer <laughs> is Matrix Revulsions. <laughs> yes. Uh enough said about that really we covered it it's a piece of shit movie sorry uh, for anyone who disagrees you're just it's everything plain, that i weirdly wrong. anticipate the avatar sequels to be <laughs> but hopefully i'm wrong about that yeah i, I don't doubt think you're I wrong. Am, but I doubt you're wrong i think the avatar sequels will be this generation's matrix sequels yeah. except different because avatar one was not my puppet right. either so uh in fifth place i gotta put uh 22 days in space sunshine I do feel like 22 days 28 22 days in space 28 days in space there we go 28 days later invaded this movie <laughs> a little bit two thirds of the way through and uh, we had a zombie movie in space that nobody expected or even really wanted very much I mean least. I don't mind a zombie movie in space just be that be that right uh, don't surprise me with it two thirds of the way through the movie that like oh this claustrophobic sci-fi man versus nature horror story thriller that's happening right. is just 
a murderous rampage movie in space, which is its own terrifying thing. We covered it. Uh, but I put it in fifth place. I wouldn't bet that you're not going to, <laughs> but I also wouldn't be surprised if it ranks above uh, fifth for you. I think I might be about to surprise you again when I put The Abyss in fourth place. Maybe yes, maybe no. Change from the director's cut to the theatrical cut, does it move from fourth to third? I don't think so. I haven't rescreened the theatrical cut in a long time, but I certainly do like the moment where Cat punches the motherfucker in the face better in the theatrical mode where you get the big boom. And for some reason, it sounds like he's slapping a wet chicken breast in the <laughs> they director's dialed it back cut. A little. Yeah, they dialed back the bass. Um, so uh, The Abyss comes in fourth place, as I said. Even though it's one of my most beloved films, I have to acknowledge its deep, deep flaws. Children of Men I'm going to put in third place. That is a solid, blooming, six-shot-looking movie. Not <laughs> six, whatever. It, it looks like about 50 shots <laughs> over the course of the movie, I think is what... Well, there, no. there's there's sequences where it's shot standardly, but there are those bravado sequences of long takes, and usually within action. Mm-hmm. And it's not just two people having a chat at a dinner table. No, but even <laughs> even the the little uh, the uh, long expository takes, takes yeah. like the, all of it. I yeah. think it's only about fifty five or sixty shots is what the movie. Maybe an actor's director, but you know, instead of doing three lines at a time, like a dozen times in a row, you get to play a fucking scene, right? Yep. You have to hit marks, and you yeah. have to time it right, but, I mean, that fine. It's yeah. It must be a really fun way to act. It must be a fun thing for everybody on set, with the exception of the, uh, you know, the production management for end sure. of things. Just trying to wrangle all of the extras and stuff must be a nightmare. But right. sitting there and watching anywhere on, on set, watching those scenes being shot must be so much fun compared to sitting in front of a green screen with George Lucas telling you what yeah. direction you should face while you look surprised. Uh, that was a sidetrack. Children Men, good movie. Wish I'd appreciated it that much the first time around uh, 15 some years ago. I guess it wasn't quite that uh, long. You were ago. having an off day. Whatever. I almost <laughs> make you, want to make you try and guess what gets uh, second and what gets first on my list, whether it's Blade I'm Runner I'm going to say Contact. Blade Runner 2 Contact 1, but I'm guessing. You're guessing right. Yeah. I'm going to put Blade Runner in second place, and I'm going to put, put uh, Contact in first place. Um, that might have been true uh, for a while after I first saw Contact, and then I think I went through a period of underappreciating Contact for a while, and perhaps overappreciating Blade Runner. Again, as I said earlier in this very podcast, I could shake my head and those four movies might be in it's a different tough, order. Man. Right? It's I could, tough. I could go to use the bathroom, slip and fall, clunk my head, and I'm yeah. suddenly giving you a totally different list, except for those bottom two. I right. think those bottom two for me <clears throat> stay on the bottom, but The Abyss, uh, it's weird for me to look at the list and see it in fourth place because it's one of my favorite yeah. sci-fi movies ever, but... That's where it ended up. That's where it ended up today. How do I match up to you? I don't match up to you, but where do we stack up other than the Matrix? (laughs) I'm going to surprise you, Paxton, and say we agree only on the top and bottom. Mm. You've put contact in But you didn't see contact coming for the top, I bet, right? I remember thinking, ah, Larry might surprise me with contact, but no, I wouldn't have guessed you had contact in Director, masterclass, science fiction. 
And to me, the most pure science fiction movie is this contact. Is contact. And I know I, I, I did make some petty complaints about it, as I did with all of the movies. But you also said that you were going to make you were judging this list as like personal, personal Larry, personal movies. Larry movies, and uh, so you are going to get mad at me a part of the list, but not not the top and bottom. The bottom is so fucking I'm clearly not, Matrix Revolution. I'm not going to get mad at you for anything. I think you'll have sunshine in second spot. <laughs> uh, Matrix Revolutions is a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. It really is. Like I hate the second movie, but the the third movie had things that it could do that could like at least finish a story. Like it had the potential of at least. Instead, they revealed they didn't really care. They had nothing. They had nothing. And it sucks to spend that much time and energy and end up with nothing. And I still remain cautiously optimistic that maybe that someday they'll come back to like where they started. But it's not been with more Matrix. Not with more Matrix, with more but quality like, stuff. Of good, they want to make more sci-fi. They want to give us this, and I know that they want to give it to us, and I want to take it from them. But so far, <laughs> so far they haven't come through. Uh, well, that's not true. Like I said, Larry I'm a, really wants the the uh, Wachowski sisters to give it to him. Yeah, give it to me, Wachowski ladies. <laughs> he wants to take it from them. I will take. They want to give. I will it. take what you have to give me. <laughs> I will take all of it. Um, but like I say, uh, Speed Racer and and Jupiter Ascending have not given a lot of confidence, and uh, like I almost sort of washed the. I gave them a pass on the Matrix. Anybody sequels. out there who's seen Jupiter Ascending, let us mail know. in to rank and review. <laughs> yeah. You qualify for a prize. <laughs> it's true, but like if I just washed away the the Matrix as like. That was their key into Hollywood. The Matrix, they made a bunch of money. Now they got that out. Now they can do the movies Let's they really want to make. Got next. And so far, it's been less than inspiring. So, yes, I talked way too much about it. I'm never going to talk about it again. Done. <laughs> okay. Uh, all the way in fifth position. Again, highly personal. Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. I figured it would be low on your list. It's. I like it. I do like it. It almost feels more noir than sci-fi in its aesthetic to me. It and, almost came below Children of Men for me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, necessarily, narratively, and in the way Ridley chose to tell the story, the movie feels knee-deep in mud. It just, it, it's, it's a slower pace for me, and mm-hmm. it's just not... It's, it was less exciting to me, and like I said, I, I warmed to Blade it's Runner. It's contemplative. But I wouldn't tell anyone not to watch it. And again, I told it, like, this list is freaking hard for me mm-hmm. so all the way in fifth position question mark blade runner and then in fourth position i put sunshine mm-hmm. the ending is flawed the movie is incredibly exciting to me like i'm with the movie i don't I, I didn't really start asking any really hard questions of the movie until the psycho killer entered the equation i was i was just i was dish i was taken with what johnny boyle was dishing me and i I'm, i think as a technical filmmaker i do believe he can do anything and I do think this is an exciting science fiction movie, and I would encourage people to check it out. I think NASA, or whoever set up those missions, if they have to send crew missions, fair enough, but, like, psychological screening, please. People. Yeah. <laughs> so then, uh, maybe controversially, I guess all the way in fourth position, or sorry, uh, third the position, third. Well, uh, The Abyss. It also has a problem in the third act. To me, it has less of a problem. You, you put a third, I put a fourth. We're not far yeah. apart on The Abyss. Right. Yeah. Uh, which by mathematically means that Children of Men made it all the way to second place. Um, I am so impressed by the filmmaking in this movie. Like, I get past anything that's familiar about the movie. Uh, I think the, the only thing that hurts repeat viewing is that it's, it's pretty heavy and pretty intense. 
it's not maybe as fun as a lot of the other movies on these, this list, mm-hmm. but like it's so impressive. It really is. So uh, it's number two. That seems maybe a little bit high, it but it's just how I feel. <laughs> hey, can we rewind that scene? Oh we yeah, the first I time I saw it, I was like, oh, I'm gonna watch this again, like right away, <laughs> like yeah. right away, just to just as like, how did they get that shot? And then I guess I already sort of spoiled the meal here by announcing it at the top. But no, no. number one is Contact to me. Because again, it's the purest sci-fi. And even though it doesn't have the spectacle, I guess, to a degree of the other movies, it's almost more ambitious than the other movies. I remember walking out of that movie with Tom Lehner. We saw that together in the theater. And both of us were sort of high on how yeah. excellent a movie it was. And I can't remember his exact words. But it was something to the effect of, well, now I've seen a perfect movie. Yeah. And I was like... Uh, Matthew McCornell, I know. <laughs> yeah, that Palmer Joss character, but Tom but was a little bit. Of, he was one really of them secular like, like yep. that's a really fucking good movie. Definitely. And, uh, I guess. I mean, if we're gonna agree in only two places, let it be the top and the bottom. Well, and you're right that the middle was. A crucible, like, and again, tomorrow if I was making the list, maybe it would be shuffled differently. The I top don't feel for me though wasn't even necessarily yeah. contact. That wasn't an easy yeah. decision for me either. I don't feel good about Blade Runner in fifth. Like I don't, but it's just where it fucking ended up. For I don't, me, feel, I don't feel really good about Sunshine in fifth either. I wish I didn't have to put it there. I mostly wish that I had enjoyed that movie this time on yeah. my latest screening as much as I did the, the two previous times I'd seen it. But I look forward to talking to you more about Blade Runner, both this one and the sequel, after you've t- seen it because it may color your perspective. I'm curious to see uh, what Ridley Scott and, uh, well, and he only produced this one, right? yeah. the new one. Um, and we'll see, uh, we'll see what Harrison Ford has to say. I'm assuming he's still playing... Deckard, but I have no idea. I've managed I'm the media blackout that I've managed to maintain <laughs> on this Blade Runner 2049 for all this time, because it's been out for, what, a year and a half now, something, something like, that. like that. It hurts me to look on this paper and see the abyss in fourth place. Yeah. That's where I had to put it. I actually, I was that would have been the thing that I would have thought you to put higher, honestly, of that, of your list. That maybe be the place that most surprised me. Yeah, it was higher. Well, I've written this, this is the third time I've written it out, and it was not quite this list the other two times it's been a little different each time but I think I feel good about this one I think your list is complete dog shit dog shit totally wrong I'm the champion Lee I'm the champion Larry is a faker I appreciate you coming back to rank and review it's been fun to be back well we did that was a lot of movie we just dug through no no these were these were ambitious movies so we gave them their due watch any and all of them three times before you watch the matrix yeah fuck you matrix Wow, was that a tough rank. And even, like, going over the audio on this, I'm still not sure if I put the order right at all. It's still, really, I know I say it too much in the show, you guys, but that was one of the toughest ranks that I've had in a long time. So I hope you enjoyed uh, another plus-sized episode of Rank in Review. And uh, if you've got some feedback for me, if anyone wants to give me a shit for where Blade Runner ranked on the list, you can do that at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please check out the website at rankandreview.ca and please support the Terror Table podcast, which is another podcast in my neck of the woods that does horror really well. I hope you keep listening to Rank and Review. Thank you so much for your time. I will be talking to you every other Wednesday. That's how I do. 